Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee with our head coach, Chad Timmerman. Hi, everybody. Our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. We're back in the Trainer Road studios this week. It's been a little bit. We were off in Kona. We hope you enjoyed those podcasts. And But it's good to be back and good to have the whole crew together again because you missed the last one that we did in Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, yeah, it has been. Yeah. (laughs) So first things first, we're going to just recap a bit of the performances from the athletes from Kona to kind of bring everything full circle. Last time you heard from these people, they were just getting ready to race, some nervous, some excited, everything else. So the first podcast that we did, which was episode 224 with Frida Hedman, she was the one where her bike never showed up, still never showed up. Uh, So she rode on a borrowed bike. Uh, Pretty, pretty crazy story there. Mm -hmm. Uh, She ended up swimming a 10702. She rode a 547.51, which that's impressive for being on a totally borrowed bike with a weird bike fit, everything else. Mm -hmm. And then she ran a 353.42. She said the last 20 kilometers, which is a good chunk of that run. She said the last 20 kilometers were just so hard, Uh, so much harder than she had anticipated. But she got a 10.55, which she got 28th in her age group, which at Kona, that's extremely impressive. Mm -hmm. Like reminding folks, this isn't just a normal Ironman. Scott Byram, he was episode 225. He did a 109 swim for his bike. He did a 459 fast time. And he did. Do, do you think he like really won again under five? <laughs> right. <laughs> when you see that, you're Just like, go on, go, yeah. go, go. Right. Uh, then he did a 347 run uh, for a combined time of 1008. Uh, so he was 109th in his age group. And that's, uh, he mentioned that on the bike, he said the wind was so tough, like really, really tough. And he said it just basically dropped his speed down so much more than he thought it was going to in a lot of sections. Uh, then the speediest time of all from Norman Bannock, he was the guy from Germany living in Austria that, that we interviewed episode 226, 59, 43 swim. So sub hour swim, that's fast. They had a really strong current that day that was, they were pulling them in and out, but it was pulling them off course mm. pretty hard. So 5943. His bike was 44917. And then his run was 31509. So he had a combined time of 91109, which is like, I mean, that is so fast. And he got 16th in his age group, 94th male, 105th athlete overall. So he <laughs> is, when you look at that, the 105th best tra- triathlete wow. in the world. That's it's including pros. Yep, including pros. Wow. That's really impressive. And he did that on the trainer road training plans as the, all these athletes that we're talking to here, almost all of them followed the plans, uh, basically to a T then added on as they wished. Right. Which is really cool. That's a good thing to see. So way to go, Norman, super fast time, John Borton from the UK episode 227. He swam a one Oh six thirty eight. His bike was five sixteen Oh six. I was out on the bike course, uh, at multiple spots, just bouncing around all over the course on Saturday and got to see him out there. And he looked like surprisingly chipper. Cause I saw a lot of people coming through that did not look so chipper, uh, but he was, he, he looked like he was hanging in there. And then on his run, he did a three Oh eight 41, which was 13th in his age group and the 85th fastest run on the day, including pros. That's awesome. That's really fast. And I ran with him for just a short period, uh, on the run course. And he was just about to turn down on Polani and then, or not Polani, uh, Wallalai and come down, down to, um, down to elite drive and into the finish. Mm. And he was in a bad place. Like <laughs> I'm impressed though. Uh, he did a nine forty two, So that's super impressive. Um, then we get into Nate Zorlango. He was the one that got hit by the car just before. 
And I talked to him. He said that it was, he was even more sore on race day. So one four, yeah, one fourteen oh five swim. His bike was five seventeen twenty six, And he said on the bike, it was like his shoulder started to go. Then his hip started to go. Then just everything. Like he was just so sore from and that he's crash. Got to run a marathon. Yeah. And then three forty nine run. He described the run as very lonely. <laughs> just like <laughs> out on the queen K too. Like when yeah, you get yeah. out there during the run course and you go out there, it is just like, And it's a long straight section, but also at that point, there's no fanfare because the pros have already finished. Right. So like a lot of people are just down in that area. There's like no one up there. It's, it's rough. The crazy thing in a normal Ironman, a 349 would be one of the faster bikes or runs. Yeah. And you would be, you'd be lonely just because you're in the front of the race. (laughs) Like, uh, especially with a 517 bike, there's not many people do that, but at Kona, amazing. It's like everyone is right there because they're they all qualified, right? Yeah. Uh, it's just crazy at a world champs. The level of these athletes yeah. is amazing. Truly is a world championship. You can skew your expectations too because I look at these times and I'm like, okay, yeah. But these are these are the best. The best. These yes. are the best, right? And mm-hmm. he did a 10.33. Now keep in mind that the majority of these people that we were talking to, they all had sub nine times or somewhere around there going into Kona. So it shows that like Kona, like, Tack on an hour, tack yeah. on two hours, and that's like what it's going to be. Well, you, you know, I, I do the same thing when I was a triathlete. You look at the times, you're like, I could maybe do all of those by themselves. By themselves. But do like <laughs> one, like do Geiger on Trainer Road and then just run a 5K <laughs> and see how your 5K time goes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I didn't have to appreciate how hard it is to run off the bike. Yeah. yeah. Those, but, I mean, short, those are short bikes. Exactly. 40K bike. A five-hour bike. Oh, yeah. lucky. Yeah. Oh, our triathlon challenge has changed. Can we stay on top of triathlon yeah, for a second? Yeah, let's do that. It's yeah, updated. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So um, I have a confession to make. <laughs> uh oh. I broke our our thing. Oh, no. Our pact? Yep. When I was at the Honolulu airport going to Chicago, I ran like <laughs> half a mile as fast as I could. <laughs> to get to the next gate? Yeah. And I was like, Start I training. could do this. I had luggage with me and stuff. <laughs> I'm like, I am literally an Ironman right now training. Because I had just seen everybody. We just saw it. Yeah, yeah. The world record that. was yeah. about to be broken yeah. twice. And one unofficially and once for the women in Chicago. And then we saw another world record in Kona. Yeah, Kipchoge's uh, 159. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. That one's yeah. not official. Yeah, uh, oh, true. Yeah, the Chicago yeah, yeah, Marathon yeah. one's more impressive. And Jan's is a good. impressive. Too. John Ferdino, yeah, yeah, blew it away. Anyways, what well, we we talked about it, and since I already broke it, uh, <laughs> that we will. Um, so, in two years or no, when we're forty, what year is this? Twenty twenty. It's twenty twenty two. Twenty twenty two. We plan on doing um, triathlon. We're gonna do a sprint, Olympic, half, and a full within six months. Before we weren't gonna start training until then. That's off. Well, you say we. You can start training. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'm still gonna run. I'm not gonna. I'm you, not gonna wait until you that can train all you want. You just don't do a triathlon. Let's do the first sprint together okay. six months out. Yeah, cool. Totally. But that lets Jonathan live on the swim, <laughs> not, not die in the swim. And uh, yeah. my knees hurt from. I actually cramped. I ran half a mile, <laughs> and in the airplane, I stood up and my calf cramped, and I couldn't move. And I was just thinking oh, all the so Ironman good. athletes. I know, like, right? It probably wasn't even half a mile. Probably was like quarter mile. Yeah, it took a long time though. Yeah, yeah. No, but it, I was already running, and then I've been doing maintenance runs, just like a Sunday run with Emirates. So everyone wants to know how fast I'm doing that. Oh, I'm not fast. These are like eight, nine minute miles. It's fast. And you're, and you're just in it's 20, 22 miles, three to six miles. So <laughs> yeah, no, we're just doing short runs. She's, That's she, good. she was That's training good. for a triathlon. I was accompanying yeah. her. It wasn't training, but it was mileage. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's I something mean, it's still training. But it wasn't training for anything specific. And the good thing that it does is it builds up a lot of, you know, durability. So That's the idea. I mean, I got some old bones here relative to you youngsters. No, my, <laughs> my knees 
we talked about this already on the, mm -hmm. on the channel. And then when I was in Chicago, I ran on the treadmill like twice for three miles, which mm -hmm. was so hard. And uh, <laughs> my knees hurt like still today. Like really? Cycling doesn't do our knees any favors. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's low impact, but <laughs> yeah. it doesn't do a whole lot of restructuring. Or... I know. I've always True. had knee problems too. And I'm a big lanky guy usually have yeah. problems with knees. So. Right. Uh, Can we talk about the two events that, cause, and for people that don't know when we trained for this in 2022, which I'm really glad we're talking about this now, cause we're not going to have enough opportunities to talk about it <laughs> up until then. Yeah, we've only got two years. <laughs> only two years. Three. Uh, but we, I mean, we're not going to be training for a sprint, then train for an Olympic, then train for a half, then train for a full. We're just going to train for the full yep. and we'll, those races will happen. Mm -hmm. yep. Um, those are more execution practice. What does it feel like to run off the bike? How mm -hmm. am I transition? Nutrition on the bike, equipment, yeah. what hurts, mm -hmm. all that all that stuff. Everything hurts. Yeah. So you know. Do we want to talk about the two events that we're targeting for our for the no, full? No, because we don't know yet. And I don't want anyone to plan anything yet around that. Yeah, yeah. Um until we really decide. Cool. And I think yeah, until we really decide and say we're going to try to sign up for those, we should do it. If anybody wants to give us suggestions, you can go into forum.trainerroad.com and you can go and find this episode. It's episode 230. And you can let us know which ones we should do and why. We can probably tell them what we're looking for. Yeah, tell them, let's tell them that. We're looking for, uh, so uh, we're looking for the it's swim. For the is, Ironman. Yeah, for the Ironman. The swim is the swim, really. I mean, obviously nothing too crazy, but the swim is the swim. What's illegal would be great for us. Yes. On the bike, we would like something that is that it's a relatively difficult bike course with elevation change, but not crazy climbing. Because right. Chad and I are big dudes. Rolling mm -hmm. course would be cool. Yep, yep. Rolling, rolling, but yeah. not like a pure watt per kg. Yeah, like nothing with really big long climbs or yep. anything else like that. Um, like Kona would be a great bike course, I think, for us. Sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. if it wasn't in Kona with all that wind and heat. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and fast people. Uh, yeah. Then on on the so yeah, just like it. Um, and then on the run. As easy and flat as possible. Yeah, and and, and no it, elevation. If it all. has a run where it's actually like laps within like a, a smaller thing, even better. Yeah, that, that gives you a chance to pull out because <laughs> you're like, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. If it's like That's point to point, point, point like, I got to go back. Temptations. To <laughs> no, seriously. Oh, I believe it. It yeah. is uh, when I I've only done one Ironman and it was horrible. And yeah, both times I was like looking at everyone finished already. <laughs> <laughs> that would be hard. Uh, okay, so maybe not, but just the same, an easy run and um, sea level. I think it just makes it easier for us. Yeah. Um, I don't want to do any like 7,000 feet or even 4,000 feet. And mm -hmm. then not extreme weather temperature. We're pretty, we're pretty young. Yeah, no hard man races. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> Make this as easy as possible. Not 100 degrees, people. not like 30 degrees. I can just see people in the forum right now just talking about how, how, how weak we're being. There's a day. certain number of people who are like, you know, you should do the most epic one right. possible yeah, yeah. Uh, straight out of the gates no yeah just no how about never <laughs> it's hard enough yeah uh yeah, yeah never. i completely agree maybe for a half we can have adverse no. conditions no the halves are <laughs> I'm hard just saying, if we're gonna have it let's not no, have it for the full hard. distance yeah, yeah i don't doubt that yeah let's just not have it let's just have good make everything nice and, and nice and good a that, half can feel like leadville oh yeah it's just like yeah, it's a big day it's tough it's a big day uh, one quick thing. Uh, so I went to, uh, my wife and I took a short vacation over in Maui after Kona for a little bit and I had my first altercation or I guess I was, I had my first crash with the car. So Whoa. it's hard to say I got hit by the car because I hit the car, you did the hitting, uh, but it wasn't my fault. It was the classic thing that so many people listening to this have had where the car passes you and then immediately turns right and they turn right in front of you and you have nowhere to go. Um, and in this case, uh, I had just a couple of things I want to share just cause I know that all, you know, all of us listen to this, we ride out on the road, that sort of stuff. And one thing really, really, really helped me. And that was that Garmin Varia radar that I have. So 
this is like where I was riding in Maui and, and Wailea. There's, it's like a lot of spots where we're in Kihei actually where people can turn in. And anytime I get close to those intersections, I'm paying attention to the radar to see if there's a car coming up or where they're at yeah. because they might make a turn. And uh, when you don't have that radar, you don't, you don't know where they are. So this thing is really helpful. So I was coming up to an intersection, saw a car was coming up. So I eased off cause I was probably going like 23, 22 miles an hour. Cause I was carrying like, you know, so a, a pretty good pace, but I eased up when I saw that happening in the intersection coming and sure enough, they just passed and turned right in front of me. I was able to skid sideways and then, and bleed a ton of speed. And then I just basically put my foot into the side of their rental car door, <laughs> dented it really bad, but the bike didn't make impact. Just my body didn't. It was a very light impact with my body strong with the heel and then light with everything else. So I came out entirely fine, but if you do have those, it's just, it's super important that we all stay heads up. Um, it's, it's, uh, just things happen way out of your control. My dad is listening. I'm sure. And, uh, what he always said, it was like driving, like expect everyone to just do something crazy. A hundred percent. When you look on the road, lots of people don't drive that way where if someone in front of you expect them to just randomly slam on the brakes mm -hmm. yes. and it happens all the time. You see it now you have YouTube, you can see it all the time and cycling is even more important because you're not surrounded by this metal box. Um, if somebody pulls in front of you, just expect them to make, if there's a possible right turn, expect them to make it. If there is a shoulder for them to pull over, expect them to do it. Mm -hmm. If you're descending behind a car, expect them to see a deer and slam on the brakes. And always be aware of your exits. Have a yep. couple, couple yeah. exit strategies, ideally. Yeah. You gotta this... have enough room though to stop. Mm -hmm. So if you're going <laughs> too fast and the, uh, this happens to, um, Ironman athletes too. It happened to Jordan rap. Um, it, that if you're in the aero bars and someone does that. It's a lot worse. Can't do anything in that position. You, you take out a second or two of stopping and, sure. and with how, with your speed, that's a lot of distance. Mm -hmm. Yes. A ton of distance. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that, that radar was huge. And, uh, ever since I rode with yours, uh, once now I, I can't really imagine riding mm -hmm. without it. It's yeah. they're, they're awesome. You had this too, but I think all cyclists should have it is the front blinking light. Mm -hmm. I know it doesn't look super cool, but, uh, the, the fact that somebody might turn right in front of you, hopefully that blink sure. people will be Catches able to see attention. it. Yeah. And it just has to work once in your whole career Yep, and it's worth it. I had the, for those that are wondering, I had the bond trigger ion 200 RT flare RT light set. That's sorry. That's just what it's written. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's the one I had. And it actually attaches to the GoPro mount beneath my Garmin mount on the front, yeah. super easy setup. Um, so, and it's, and it's a tiny light, but it's really bright and it pulses it like kind of like a weird rhythm. So yeah. it's good to get, good to get, uh, attention. You have the pro, um, ion flare, the bigger one. See, I think I might get the, well, depending on the light, the, the, the pro is bigger, but it's used for night riding too. It has like a bigger battery. Yeah. But with the flash that I do, it's like something crazy, like 12 or 18 hour battery life, which I don't need on the road. Right. So maybe the small one, uh, would be yeah. nice if it's the same brightness. Cause that's, I would totally do a bigger one. I'm not sure it's as bright as yours. Yours is really bright. Yeah. Right. You guys mm -hmm. rode with me. Yeah, Could you see really me bright. when you look around, oh, yeah. would you see me blinking oh, yeah. in the daylight? No, I'd, I'd see your light when you were riding behind me. I would see your light blinking just from the reflection of the Jersey in front of me. But yeah. Like, that was in the mornings too, but not, maybe not in the day, even but, in the day. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's really and it has bright. like a bond trigger has like a different pattern. So yeah. it's not, it's like, it's a weird pattern. It's supposed mm -hmm. to get humans to look at it. Sure. Yeah. It works know. well. It's not rhythmic. Yeah. It's not rhythmic. So yeah, um, yeah, Stastic. always, always be as safe as you can uh, when you're out there. <clears throat> uh, Nate, did you have anything else that you want, want to add on that? Um, no, move just, on just, yeah. Or ride indoors. Uh, yeah. True I mean, story. Yeah. yeah better training trails. too. I, I, we talk about this a lot. I think everyone can do what they want, but 
I want to do more indoor ridings and then uh, mountain biking. Mm-hmm. Mountain biking, you do get hurt. You crash more often, but they're like collarbones and wrists rather than or just you, cars. And there's a lot of crashes that kind of have to happen. I feel like to get to the point, like you crash a lot and you're totally fine on a mountain bike, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. right? Yeah. There's like tip overs and stuff like yeah. that. But, uh, yeah. yeah. And some of the downhill people can get seriously injured and you can die. Sure. But, um, I manage my, you can manage your speed. It's but like, it's in your oh, yeah. control. And that's almost always, like. yeah, well, that's it. Almost always those crashes are on you. Yeah. Yes. So it's not someone else's influence. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You can't be riding completely safe and a car just comes through the woods <laughs> and smacks you. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. cars, don't, cars don't fit well on single track. So, uh, <clears throat> one correction from a previous episode that I want to cover. Uh, so we talked about standing versus sitting last time, and we saw a few different people write in and perhaps uh, misconstrued mm-hmm. or took our words a bit further yeah. uh, than they needed to be. We got the question, basically, should I always sit during workouts? Because we were talking about the fact that, that standing is less efficient than sitting. And that's just the facts. That's just what it is, right? It is. That's not to say stay seated all the time. It's just recognize that you will sacrifice some efficiency when you get out of the saddle. Yeah. And and I think you have to kind of prepare for the demands of your races, right? If you don't plan to stand at all, uh, I still would recommend getting used to standing just because it's yeah, some time you're going to need to be able to do it. Comfortably move in, out, in and out of the saddle mm-hmm. gracefully, minimally wasteful. Yep. But if you have a race where you know that you're going to be out of the saddle a lot, like I think of like cyclocross racing, I think of short track mountain bike racing, that sort of stuff. Yeah, where anything it's like, that requires high power, explosive power, yep. you're going to get out of the saddle from time to time. Yep. Get used to it. So it's, it's a good thing to do. Uh, <clears throat> a couple other things really quick. Uh, Nate, can we actually go into your new bike? And then we're going to jump back oh, up yeah. to item three that we have on the list there. Let's do it. Okay. So you got a new mountain bike. Cross country mountain bike. I did. Cause you've been, you had a specialized Epic. I did. And then you got a Yeti SB 150. I did. <laughs> <laughs> and that like leveled you up because the SB 150 is a big enduro bike and it yep. really helped you kind of get more comfort. And I speed. spent time. Yes. I spent time at North star wore body armor, had a very forgiving bike mm-hmm. that slowed down the trail, had nice beefy tires. The fear went away. When the fear went away, I could actually work on technique. Mm. And then as the technique comes back and I come back on a cross-country bike, there's no fear because I'm feeling – it just feels slower and more stable than it did before. This is like a really interesting point because there's two schools of thought on this, right? There are some people that just say – uh, get the bike, get a hard tail. That's like an upright head tubing on that'll teach you how to ride. Right. That's yeah, like, that's it's like, hard. It's like an old school thought. School of hard knocks. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just throw them in the pool. Yeah, exactly. They'll figure it out. <laughs> figure it out. Uh, but the, the downside to that, like you said, Nate, is that it's just, you never reach a level of comfort that allows you to fully learn. Yep. We, we've talked about that plenty of times. Like the level of arousal is higher than that sweet spot of seven to eight, somewhere mm-hmm. around there. It's up into the nines and tens and you're just never able to actually figure it out. Yeah. And if it's so sketchy underneath you at all times, you don't know what's causing you to go out of control, sure. you know? Pretty so hard to learn. It is. Yeah. When you're crashing all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're and just, that, just carrying a ton of fear. Yep. Yeah. And the, I was still pushing it because I, like, in one 90 minute ride, I'd crash like five times. Yeah. So <laughs> exactly. that was really annoying. Yeah. So your new bike is the Pivot Mach 4 SL mm-hmm. Team XDR with a 120 millimeter fork and Fox Live valve. Yes. So a lot to say. Yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> That's how I should describe it all the time. Uh, yeah, exactly. Please <laughs> say that entire name. Um, so yeah, right. Real smooth rolls off the tongue. So this has a 34, uh, the 34 step cast fork, which just means that it's a little bit bulkier. It's like a, a, a they're bigger diameter tubes. That means it's going to be a little bit stiffer, which I think is actually really important since you're a taller and bigger rider. When you have a 32 millimeter fork in the front, things get a little spindly. It's kind of like you have a little, a couple chopsticks out there and they, they flap all around. 
uh, and then it's got that live valve suspension, which means that it intelligently, it has like a whole wired system with accelerometers and everything else so that it can, I think it's a thousand Hertz or a thousand times a second. It can change. I think it's a thousand. It takes three milliseconds. It's okay. both your front and rear suspension. I didn't realize it yep. was the front also. I yep. saw the yeah. wires running too. That was pretty cool. Yeah. To so, open or close the valve for suspension. And then you can set <clears throat> what that threshold or, or valving change feels like yep. uh, with like five different settings. Right. Yep. So it's really cool. And I think it's something that we're going to see on all bikes moving forward at some point, all of them are going to have these sort of systems, uh, which is pretty neat. Doesn't this sound so me? The, oh yeah, hundred like, percent. Like <laughs> it's on brand, hundred <laughs> percent on brand, but let's talk about the initial setup because we do get a lot of questions from people about like, I just got a mountain bike. How do I set it yeah. up? Or people that have ridden a long time and don't know how. Okay. One step back. The reason why we got this bike for me, cause there's a lot of choices. Mm -hmm. Um, we wanted this, uh, Jonathan's I have Jonathan here. So <laughs> when I say we, Jonathan's my mountain bike equipment <laughs> coach, um, that we wanted a bike that was cross country enabled. That's light but also more raked out in the front uh -huh. so that, uh, on like I could on downhills, I'm not going to lose as much time and I'm getting actually a lot, lot, lot better on downhills. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, he's fast. He's actually fast. Like, yeah, like I'm, I'm okay. I can like ride with mountain bikers now. Yeah. If you're listening to this though, like, uh, there are, there's like a section of trail that we rode at North star where I was pushing really hard. And Nate was just right in front of me, <laughs> like so right behind you or right in front of you. You were right in front of me when it's just the top section of coaster. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're fast. Cool. So. Thank you. Yeah. Anyways, that was, so that's what it is. It's a little more like a little more raked out, but, and then also pedal efficiency with the live valve. Mm -hmm. So light bike that, and then little shorter chain stays, mm -hmm. um, kind of the combo that we we thought would be good for me. Super nerdy stuff just to get it out of the way really quick, but 67 and a half degree head tube angle is what you have with a 120 millimeter yeah. fork on this bike. And before I was 110, was it 100? Oh, uh, you were, you were 100. I was 100 in the Epic. Epic. Yeah. So this though, with the live valve. Like 70, I think. So like really upright. Mm -hmm. It can make it feel very, um, like you have a short, you like, you're very efficient while you're pedaling mm -hmm. because it doesn't like compress very much. But mm -hmm. then when it's open, you feel like you're, uh, you have one, you actually do have a 120. So yeah. that's, to me, that was like, that sounds so awesome. It's like the best of both worlds. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Super smart. But there's some setup. Well, I haven't really worked too much in setup issues, but we want to talk about it because I think yes. everyone has setup issues on a mountain bike, unless you're like a Jonathan. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I do too. You okay, know? cool. Yeah, for sure. So this is new, a new bike. And this is just initial impressions. It's not like this is like the verdict on the bike, right? Like this is how it will behave forever. Oh yeah. So just a, a good disclaimer to get out of the way. And and I, how you go through this process all the time with road bikes, TT bikes, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. every person that we saw at Kona, they had refined their setup so much over time, you know, and, and that's just the process that you go and through. Mountain biking, there's even more. So what's the problem you're experiencing on the trail? So, um, when I am climbing something steep or going through a switchback, which is switchbacks are steep, my front wheel lifts. I'm going to play devil's advocate. Just lean forward, Nate. Actually, yes. I'll just read from your Strava comments. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just lean forward. That's what yeah. a lot of people say. I am, uh, I can't say it the way I described to you guys before, but I am <laughs> as far forward on that seat that uh, there's the, the, the contact point on my rear end minimal. is very minimal <laughs> and I am bent over all the way that, uh, I wouldn't be able to pedal if I was bent over anymore. Chest is low, right? As Your low as possible. Yeah, yep. I am like doing a 40 K TT, like <laughs> all the way bent over and still doing a wheelie through mm. a switchback. Cool. So like body, a unicycle. body position, 
That's not the I'm not just leaning back. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> chopper style. Yeah, we'll, chopper style. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll have to get that photo that you took of your bike and post it in the forum for this episode yeah. so people can see it. Let's get a new one here because uh, the okay. dropper post was down. Oh, I yeah. think that like changes the perspective for yeah. people. So uh, we'll get a picture and we'll put it up in the forum. Uh, producer Tucker will do that. Thanks, Tucker. So what do you do, Jonathan, if your front wheel picks up while you're climbing and your body position isn't terrible? So that has me thinking that y- you're even though right now your body position is low and far forward, it's all relative to where your hands can be placed on the handlebars. I think that you should look at a longer stem and or lower stack to get yourself so that basically if you look at where your hands are, they would just drift down and closer to that front wheel. We're not talking down to the front wheel or just relatively speaking. Cause right now, since you're so tall, the stack that you have on that bike, and you'll see this in the picture, it puts the, in the short stem, I think it's a 60 millimeter stem. Uh, so, or may even be a 50, it's pretty short. Yeah. Uh, but your hands are like, if you drew the line from the axle up the fork through the head tube and all the way up, it's like a straight line. It's almost like you have a zero length stem right? Uh, because your stack is so high that your stem is placed in the spot where it's almost like your stem is like backwards and behind the steering tube. So as a result, like no matter what you do with your body, you'll never be able to really get that weight as far forward as it should be. So I think that we should try lowering your stack, but lengthening your stem for sure. Should I do lowering the stack before I buy a new stem? Cause it's just taking spacers out. Totally. That's the easy thing. Well, how many spacers should somebody do at a time when they're doing this? I have one at a time. Well, actually it depends. If you have really small spacers, you're probably not going to notice a huge difference. And if you also know that you're a person that doesn't notice big, like changes on bikes, go to two big spacers or go a big difference and then work your way back from there to feel more comfortable. And when we first set this up, um, so the steer tube hasn't been cut or anything and mm-hmm. the bike shop guy who set it up, just put it at the top. Mm-hmm. So right. there yeah. could be a lot, a lot of room to go. And I yep. was, uh, kind of like pressed for time as normal. I was just like new bike. Oh, it's going outside right now. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just read online some like, exactly. uh, uh, what PSI should do and got the SAG sorted right. And was like out the door. Yeah. So I didn't spend the the kind of time and care that somebody should when setting up a mountain bike. Yeah. So if a person feels like this sort of thing happening, first do a body position check. Are you really leaning forward and moving your pelvis forward and doing everything that you can? Then if that's the case and it's still wanting to lift when you're in like really steep switchbacks and turns, then it's probably worth you looking into extending your reach out a little bit and maybe dropping the stack and that'll okay. help. And then we're also going to look at uh Lee McCormick's rad. It's a really good way to figure it out, which he just measures from basically the center of the bottom bracket to the center point of where your hands are on the handlebars. And this is the same thing that Sam Hill does as well for any bike. That's basically the measurement he cares about. That's it. Hmm. Uh, that's the most important thing. And if you have that figured out, it's actually pretty liberating because you can find out that you can use a medium or you could use a large or you could do something else. And it's just, you change the stem as a result you of just that. carry that from bike to bike. Is yep. that the idea? Yeah, exactly. And the way that he figures that out is really clever, uh, with his rip row, when you're basically in that standing position where you're standing straight up and hands are on the handlebars, uh, you want, you don't want to have your shoulders shrugged. You want them to, in that position, your shoulders are slightly tugged down, I would say. And in that position, it's really easy for you to measure the rad as he calls it, uh, which I can't remember the exact acronym, but it's probably yeah. something awesome and shredly. Um, and <laughs> that's the, but that's the, and then you can use that measurement Speed to figure to it your out. handlebars pretty much. So what he says is that if it's like, what you want is that if you're completely rowing, like going off a jump or something, mm-hmm. um, I've been doing it wrong, but, uh, <laughs> that should be the, the distance. Like, um, mm. if you have the handlebars all the way pulled in, you're rowing off a jump, like mm-hmm. think of like a BMXer yeah. that should be the same. So then when you're, when you're anti rowing and out that, that distance 
will feel good. Yes. And you yeah. don't actually need the rip row to measure this. You can just put handlebars in your hand and totally measure it. Yep. Um, it just makes it easier. Feet to handlebars is a better way to describe that. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the hard thing about measuring feet to handlebars, which I guess you could, but it's nice measuring bottom bracket. Well, if you're on a bike, yeah. Well, if we're talking about the rip row, then it's feet to handlebars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Yeah. And you can also measure a bike that you like. Mm -hmm. And then say, oh, I, say, I wish I had my Epic because I like that position. Mm -hmm. um, I would have measured that and then tried to mimic that on the pivot. Yeah, yeah. Which sometimes it will change slightly. I, I know Lee might uh, disagree with this to a certain uh, extent, but I've found that it does change a little bit. Like, for example, it's a little bit longer on my cross-country bike than it is on my enduro bike. Does he bike. contend that it should carry bike to bike regardless of changes I, in geometry? I think so. Yeah, mm. I think so. But I, I actually like one just slightly longer on my cross-country bike. Mm. Um, I don't feel like I'm doing quite as many big <clears throat> leverage moves and, as I am on the enduro bike. And it feels better when I'm climbing. So one fear that I have is even with that, it's not going to do it mm -hmm. because my seat post is so high and the angle, it makes that seat so far back. Yep. I'm going to have the seat slammed all the way forward. Would the next thing be like to get a, like a flipped, um, seat like post. a yeah, offset forward. Cause yeah. if that happened, I think, I feel like that would really help. Yeah. So that's the hard thing. So like mountain bike manufacturers are making bikes with steeper seat tube angles, gravel bike companies too now, and even road bike companies. And basically that means that instead of your, if you're to look at from your bottom bracket, going up to your saddle, instead of it leaning backward, it's getting more and more upright, mm -hmm. which and I like. It's great. It positions you over the bottom bracket a little bit more, which then since bikes are getting longer in the front, it makes it so that you can get more weight on the front end for handling. And this is road bike too, right? Like when you're going through a turn, that sort of stuff, it's good to have a lot of weight on that front wheel. Um, but when you're really tall, like Nate is, and you have so much seat post, it still puts you really far behind because you just have so much seat post extending out there. So the hard thing is I can't think of a dropper post with offset really, you know what I mean? So like they, if it has an offset, could you turn it around? You could. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cause I, I bought a fall 9.8 one it's yeah. coming in with zero offset. Yeah. Probably shouldn't have done that. Probably I don't should have got the 15. Did they make offset. a 15 mil yeah, offset they do. one? You might be able to just get the top attachment for it and flip it around then. Ooh, good that, idea. That might be a thing you could do. And then as long as that it's still, when it's flipped allows that angle, yeah, some of them will be limited about. on angles and you might not be able to hit it. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's a problem that tall people face. Because descending, sure. having more stack and a shorter, um, uh, stem mm -hmm. makes it feel better, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It basically gives you a little bit more leverage and it makes the bike feel a little more stable, strangely too, even though you have more leverage. Uh, so it just requires less input from you. Mm -hmm. And then the bike also just is more calm. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's so a, maybe I'll try both. Well, I'll yeah. try this dropping the spacers first. Yeah. Stack first. That's super easy. <clears throat> then you can work on reach with the, uh, with the bars, which I know when you drop stack, like spacers out, you affect stack and reach. I know that, but mainly you're affecting stack when you drop spacers out. So it's the best place to start. Um, okay. Uh, we got a lot of things to cover. Can we cover one more little sure. personal uh, thing? Uh, I just started my training for 2020. Woo! It's exciting. Yeah. 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 I'm excited. <laughs> cool. Uh, cool. I, I built out a glide path of sorts, uh, because once again, we're nerds, right. And I built out a glide path for where I need to be in terms of power and weight to get to my goal for nationals, which is basically at fourth at 4,500 feet in elevation where we're at here. Um, I want to be at a 340 FTP and then be weighing roughly 143 pounds, which is like race weight for which me. Put your watts per kg where? 5.2, just under 5.3, 5.25. Which puts you up with the... I think I need that to even top have a chance at a win. Two guys? Okay, cool. 
Yeah, it's just that they're really fast. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I and right now I should be around three oh eight three. I think is the predicted number that I have in my glide path. And I just took a ramp test, and I'm three oh six. So you're behind. I'm behind. How are you adjusting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm two watts behind, but that's pretty darn close to where I thought. And the reason that I'm based on one test day. Yeah, you might yeah. not be behind at all. Right. Exactly. Right. And he just came <clears throat> back from elevation. Yes. Yeah. Two weeks at L at, at oh, sea yeah, level. Yeah. 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 Right. So yeah, I'm still, I'm still reeling. Yeah. yeah it's, it's rough, right? <laughs> so many things about that trip are rough. <laughs> so many, <laughs> the riding, the drinking, the lack of sleep, <laughs> constant social engagement is, yeah, is a yeah. tough week. Demanding, demanding stuff. Fun in a lot of ways, but the reason that I want to cover this and, and producer Tucker is going to put the link to my ramp test in the forum. So then you can see this is so I, and, and I get this question on every single workout I do on Strava by many people. So I think I should just change my name to include these things. But, uh, yes, I do every workout on the rollers. No, I don't miss erg mode. It's fine. Erg mode's fine, but it's also fine without it. Um, and that includes all workouts. So I was doing the ramp test on that and I got to the point at the final step uh, where I was like 20 minutes in and things were very much cross-eyed blurry and not really in color anymore. And I was getting pretty out of it. And the thought of like picking up leg speed, it was just wasn't happening. And I thought, well, I have another gear. I'm just going to grab another gear and try to hold what I'm holding and we'll see if it works. And it lasted for about 40 seconds. So the power went uh, like I stepped above the actual step for the last 47 seconds. I think, uh, Nate, don't say anything. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. So he's going to give away trade secrets. But. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. It <laughs> sounds good. Um, but just the same, uh, with that, it's still an accurate test. Yes. It's great. That's the important it's thing. It's a good test and it's close enough for what you need to use it for. Yep. Exactly. Right. So, um, yeah, if you have more questions, slide into my DMs. He didn't ruin his test. <laughs> thought of this. That's, That's the, the point. Of it. Yep. Okay. Uh, let's get into, uh, let's cover the job postings later yeah. on. How about that? Sorry, there's so many updates. We don't have any things. Oh, later on. Yes. Yes. Okay. Ian's question says, Hey guys, I've been thinking. So Alberto Salazar from the Nike Oregon project has been in trouble for doping his athletes. They're using too much L carnitine and infusing it intravenously, which is not okay with WADA. This is, uh, written by Ian here. He says, but presumably the effects of L carnitine must be legit enough for them to be using it at all. I've looked into it myself and found mixed results in some research papers. Do you have any thoughts on this, on its use? Uh, and he says legally via oral tablets available at the drugstore. He says it's effectively claimed to boost the use of fat as fuel and as endurance athletes, it should appeal to us all, right? Uh, keep with the good work. So first things first, I just want to clarify a bit on the Salazar thing, if that's okay. Yep. So, um, first of all, they've, uh, so they've been, they've been banned from coaching athletes. Oh, so who is he? He's a, yes. So he is, he's actually a, a back in the day, a runner from Cuba, very fast runner. Uh, but then yeah, went world through record holder, a couple, um, how do you do it in the Olympics? I know he's won Boston, I think three times in three, a row. Yeah. He's legit or New York. One of the, either way yeah. he's went through a whole stretch of health problems. Yeah. 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 So he's <laughs> a very good athlete. Not like yeah. <laughs> very good athlete. Uh, he went through a whole, uh, uh, quite a long period of health problems and everything else. And, 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 but he's been coaching athletes for some time now. He's a famed coach. So he's a running coach. Yes. And the Nike Oregon project is, I mean, uh, Google it, you'll see a lot of stuff. It's, 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 uh, basically the whole mission of that was to make American distance runners competitive at the top global level. Again, that was really the main goal of it. Uh, but he's <clears throat> trained athletes outside of the U S. Uh, Mo Farah, most famously, I think, and Galen Rupp and, and some fast athletes mm -hmm. that he's trained. 
Um, so, uh, Alberto Salazar and Dr. Jeffrey Brown were both uh, incriminated in this whole process and lots of investigations for like the past 15 or 20 years, basically, that have been going into this. And they both received bans, but they received receive them for three reasons. And I'm trying to stick to the books on this one rather than drawing any inference, because I think there's a bit of that uh, in Ian's question. Number one, trafficking, trafficking an illegal substance. That was one reason. And it's assumed that they're taught what they're talking about with this one is androgel. And that's like a topical male hormone, right? So testosterone mm -hmm. and the gel that you basically just put onto your skin. Um, so the interesting part with this really quick is, which, <laughs> so either this is a very <laughs> clever cover or this is also them being very heads up. Okay. So. Uh, basically there were emails in between the Nike CEO and Salazar where they were talking about this gel and they were trying to find the legal limit where they could basically use this and then where you would get popped for doping. Yep. And Salazar claimed he was using the drug test to find its legal limit, to understand the risks they could face if somebody tried to sabotage their athletes. And what he's talking about here is put a dollop of it in your palm and then shake a runner's hand afterward and say like, great job. They go to testing and then they get it. Cause they were also, to be fair, they were talking about how long it would take for it to show up in the system, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, they were also talking about doing it with a handshake versus, you know, like patting somebody on the shoulder, like rubbing them on the shoulder, something like that and seeing if it would change. Um, so that's reason number one for trafficking that substance. And it's an illegal substance. Reason number two is tampering of patient records, uh, with rights and Heinz records. It showed that he received a legal amount of L carnitine, but it looks like that was added in and falsified, uh, where, so it's kind of interesting because they were receiving that from a doctor. And then also Steve Magnus's records were altered and it seems to infer that other people's were too, but those two were mentioned. And then reason three, illegally administering or attempted to administer a supplement to multiple athletes. Now it doesn't actually say clearly what the substance is and then what substances aren't involved in this part, but it definitely is implied that L-carnitine is like the main offender that they were talking about in terms of administering or attempting to administer the Seems supplement. That way, yeah. So one, trafficking illegal substance, two, tampering of records, three, illegally administering those substances. Uh, so that's kind of... That's the the background on Salazar, mm -hmm. but so then we can separate that. Let's just get into L-carnitine and what it does. Yep. So does it, I guess, <clears throat> does it make you faster? Well, okay, so L-carnitine has its purported benefits, right? And if you'll permit me to go a little off track here for just a minute, I wanna cover a topic that I've wanted to cover a number of times. <clears throat> I also wanted a reason to research it. And so I spent a little extra research built upon what I knew already. And we're not even going to talk about L-carnitine for a few minutes because we need to return back to lactate for just script. a short while. We, we totally right. are. Does it have to do with IPAs? <laughs> it doesn't. No. Okay. No. Um, so again, one of the purported benefits of carnitine, uh, not doping, supplementing, is that it reduces the or it accelerates the clearance of lactate post-workout. And I've always struggled with that. I've, I've never understood what is the hurry. I mean, it's going to clear the bloodstream and potentially the muscles. Um, 30 to 60 minutes is typically what you read. So why are we in this all-fire hurry to get lactate off of the muscles post-workout? What, what exactly is the benefit of that? Because it's touted a lot, not just mm -hmm. with carnitine, but with a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so let, let's let's talk about lactate. And, and I think why lactate is demonized the way it is is because it's tied to blood acidification because the whole increase in hydrogen ions that takes place simultaneously, yada, yada. And, and it's this blood acidification that if anything, I could see them wanting to reduce that post-workout because that probably does lead to cellular stress, cellular damage, and, and, and impedes the healing process, the recovery mm -hmm. process. So I get that. So 
let's talk instead about this acidosis rather than the lactate. And I'll, I'll tie lactate in where, where it comes along. But let's understand that this acidosis occurs because of hydrogen, not because of lactate. Lactate is not the culprit. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So two forms of acidosis. One is respiratory acidosis, respiratory acidosis. And that's basically the buildup of um, carbon dioxide in the blood. Mm-hmm. And that can happen for a number of reasons. One's poor lung function. So it could be a disease state. It could just be lack of training or lack of uh, conditioning in the respira respiratory muscles. Mm -hmm. Listen to the Canadians too much, respiratory. <laughs> um, and it could just be depressed breathing. And that could be a conscious thing. That can be a fatigue thing. That can just be a, a thing you're not even aware of, that you don't emphasize your breathing, that you don't effectively clear the CO2 when you're exercising. Mm -hmm. And that's there, there's, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there people don't recognize. Um, the other form of acidosis is metabolic acidosis. And this basically has to do with energy turnover. So we're all very familiar with this because this is what we experience during exercise, especially higher intensity exercise. And this comes down to a couple of things. One is the loss or the depletion of our bicarbonate buffer. So I mean, bicarbonate comes in a lot of forms, I think seven. Um, it's, it's always tied to a salt, in this case, sodium. So when we think about that uh, AMP gel that we, that we rub on our skin and, mm -hmm. and the um, baking soda that athletes have actually eaten in the past. Yeah. Prior to our records famously. Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. bicarbonate goes down, metabolic acidosis increases. Um, the, the other form is lactic acid buildup. And I've already made it clear that I'm not real fond of the term lactic acid. Um, it's basically exercise induced acidosis. That's, that's more technically correct. Um, so <clears throat> One thing we recognize, and I think everybody agrees on scientists, uh, athletes, coaches, et cetera, is that lactate is fuel. So we know this, and I don't think anybody argues this anymore. I mean, you, you, you take a glucose, you split it in half, you get lactate. It's literally half of a glucose molecule. It's mm -hmm. still fuel. Mm -hmm. um, and what we know now, and maybe learned recently, is that lactate itself doesn't actually reduce blood pH. So it's not even directly responsible for this blood acidification that happens. It actually, it evidences steering us toward the fact that it increases, or I'm sorry, it protects against intracellular acidosis. So, so, so within the cells, we're actually getting a positive alkalizing benefit from lactate. So it's actually helping us avoid the acidosis that we're criticizing it for causing. Hmm. Um, and, and this is because uh, the lactate itself, when it exits the cell, takes a hydrogen ion along with it. So it's called, it's basically it's co-transported out of the cell. If any of this is interesting to you and you want to study up on it further, um, George A. Brooks over at UC Berkeley is kind of the resource on these matters. Hmm, cool. So again, the point is that uh, exercise induced acidosis may actually be an alkalizing uh, or, or the presence of lactate may actually be an alkalizing agent. So it's helping cool. us. Interesting. Cool is a relative term. <laughs> I think cool. it is. We're, we're all nerds <laughs> okay. here, right? Let's and I'll, I'll be quick with this, but in further defense of lactate, um, if you look at Ferguson in uh, 2017, got it right here. Mm -hmm. So in the European Journal, Journal of Applied Physiology, reliable journal, um, Brian Ferguson and colleagues just uh, December of 2017, so recently noted that lactate is, readily com is a readily combusted fuel that is shuttled throughout the body and it is a potent signal for angiogenesis. So that right there. There's one thing in its favor. If it does further angiogenesis, which is the, the building of blood vessels, in particular uh, capillaries, so mm -hmm. the exchange of nutrients and waste products down at the muscle bed, mm -hmm. if we can enhance that, which is one of the things we chase with endurance adaptation, endurance training, why wouldn't we? Mm -hmm. So there's one vote in the favor of lactate. Another is Nalbandian and Takeda 2016 review. Studies suggest glucose can be synthesized from lactate in the muscle. Glycogen replenishment facilitates glycogen replenishment. Another vote in favor of lactate, or at least 
seems logical. Support that we can't demonize, <laughs> demonize it. That's demonize, yeah. Word. Um, other studies show that it may play a role in muscle cell myogenesis, which is the muscle cell formation, may promote differentiation in satellite cells. So anabolic signaling going on here. So satellite cells outside of the muscle produce more muscle cells. Basically, they both play a role in muscle growth, um, potential role in neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to uh, process experiences, form memories, et cetera. And it is not tied to DOMS. So again, all these times we see that lactate is, is <clears throat> blamed for an increase in DOMS. Again, show me the science, show me one time, and you know we can have a conversation. Until then, I'm just going to say it does not. <laughs> so to conclude, it's an indirect regulator of muscle acidosis. So actually tones down the acidosis it's blamed for. It is an energy source. It interacts with signaling pathways that can affect a, a number of anabolic activities. Mm -hmm. and, and really that's it. So, so why is there a pr priority on clearing it from the muscles? Yeah. So if someone can explain that to me and show me the other side of it, why we're so intent on getting it out of the muscle. I'll let you, I'll tell you. Okay. People want to sell stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> sure. Uh, so let's get back to L-carnitine. <laughs> ding, no, ding, but, ding. But let me, so I'm just going to paraphrase what you're saying is it's, that it's any, all the products that tell you that it's going to like improve lactate buffering. Yeah. You don't want that. Yes. Like maybe, maybe it doesn't even do what it says it does. Right. But I think in maybe the eighties and nineties, that was like. Everyone thought that's what you should be doing. For sure. Yep. There was a lot of products and stuff that talked about it. Why is it still hanging in there? But you, you, you just yeah, nailed it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's, so there you go. You're, okay. you're educated, Chad. You're so, welcome. So with you, all that, I feel like. Could have saved me about five hours. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the assumption of, of, of the utility of L-carnitine is like blown out of the water now. No, no, there's more. Okay. No, there's much more actually. So L-carnitine, um, first let's clarify the different, why it's L-carnitine. Why isn't it just referred to as carnitine? So there's two isomers of carnitine, which is same molecular composition. It's just different arrangement of the atoms. One could be used by the body. One has no place in the body. So the L-carnitine is what the body uses. D-carnitine is the other one. We're not, we're not even going to talk about that one. Um, 90% of it is stored in our muscles. So 90% of what we have on board is stored in our muscles. And it exists in animals as well. They have muscle tissue. And that's where we get most of our, our, our L-carnitine mm -hmm. is from animal sources. Um, it's endogenously, endogenously produced also. So, so we produce it in our bodies via the uh, use of the amino acids, lysine and methionine. Mm -hmm. so, so we have the capability to make our own uh, carnitine. But <clears throat> excuse me, when it comes to exercise, our endogenous production cannot keep up with the demand, so especially as exercise intensity increases. So the harder we work, the faster we deplete carnitine, hence the, the, need, the, the potential need for supplementation. Got it. Um, worth noting is that all essential amino acids originally come from plants. So keep that in mind. If you are a vegetarian or a vegan, you can still get all your EAAs just fine from a vegetarian diet. You don't have to, because you don't eat animal flesh doesn't mean you're going to be low on carnitine yeah. necessarily, unless there's a deficiency in the vegetable side of your diet. Um, so <clears throat> what are some of the functions of L-carnitine? Um, I trimmed it down to four. I'm going to elaborate on a couple of them, trim the, or just uh, touch on the other the others, but primarily it's fatty acid transport or what's called translocation. It takes fatty acids from outside the cell, puts it inside the cell. And this happens blood to mitochondria. Mm -hmm. So L-carnitine in the blood or in the muscle, um, or I'm sorry, free fatty acids, free fatty acids in the blood need to make it into the cell and then into the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. L-carnitine facilitates this transaction. So um, put another way, it stimulates fat metabolism, quite simply. That's, that's good. 
And that's what a lot of people want. <laughs> it's actually really good in the ter- in, in the context of endurance athletes, because if you recall, when we touched on uh, aerobic respiration, anaerobic respiration, um, when we process or, or just cell respiration, when we process carbohydrate, we get you know on the order of 30, 35 ATP per molecule of glucose. Whereas with a single molecule of fatty acid, we get about three times that much, sometimes more, depending on the length of the free fatty acid chain. It's just more so difficult to break down. A ton down, of energy. Right? takes longer to break down, but it's far more efficient fuel source. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the way it works is fatty acids that are stored in our fatty or in our uh, adipose tissue are broken down. Um, in, they, they make it into the blood. They bind to albumin. Albumin just uh, basically brings them to the cell, and then carnitine shuttles the free fatty acids into the mitochondria. Got it. So that's the process, um, and, and that's largely what we're concerned with here. But let me also mention that it inhibits lactate accumulation, and basically anything that's going to shift us towards fat, which doesn't produce lactate as a byproduct is going to reduce lactate accumulation. Makes sense. And in doing so is going to preserve glycogen. So we get that double whammy, mm-hmm. less lactate, more glycogen on board. So that's a good thing too. Yeah. Um, reduces metabolic waste accumulation during exercise. So forget about the post it's, this is during. So, um, there's something called, uh, there's another type of carnitine called acetyl L carnitine. And this is more for the geeks, but it reduces that acetyl coenzyme A buildup that takes place. It, it, in the mitochondria such that, I mean, w- once that accumulation happens, you can't get more pyruvate in, lactate builds up. So either way, it's, it, it, it all reduces that accumulation. And I'll touch on this later, it prevents PCR usage. So that immediate snap of energy we get from the ATP and the PCR that's stored on board in our muscles, mm-hmm. it helps us preserve that by basically elevating aerobic metabolism so we don't get to the point where we have to use those more short-term stores hmm. during the onset of intense exercise. So basically when we jump into something rapidly. When you start quickly. Yeah. Gun you know, goes off. warm up, basically. Got it. And then um, very briefly, it's essential for normal heart function. Okay. So so there's the, the upsides of L-carnitine. But uh, let, let's, let, let's talk supplementation because the, the key to this all is that our body produces it anyway and we can get it through a regular yeah. diet. So why are we so intent on supplementing? And is there truly a benefit with supplementing? I want to say something because this is what this is what really grinds my gears sometimes <laughs> so um everything you said is true um think about so listening you're like well let me go on amazon i'm buying some right now no 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 i do this <laughs> um, every supplement i research like yeah. why wouldn't i be on that exactly <laughs> um think about it like with water like you if chad were here to tell you all the things that water does for you you'd be amazing like um, they took athletes they didn't give them water and they had them run for a very long time and then you think whoa Maybe yeah. I should supplement with water. Yeah. I mean, maybe I yeah. should do three gallons a day, five gallons a day. Yeah. Um, but I, so like just um, mechanisms is not outcome. So although we understand the mechanisms, now let's see if can we impact the outcome based on either supplementation mm-hmm. or timing or stuff like that or loading. That's so just because it, the, just because there are mechanisms that improve doesn't mean you can impact it w- yourself. Sometimes it's just the way it is. Well like said. It, That's a yeah. good point. So, so look for outcome stuff rather than just people who only talk about mechanisms. Because if Chad was selling L-carnitine right now, I he just, would I he'd end talking. it right there. <laughs> yeah, be like, yeah, there you go. Daddy Warbucks. Twenty nine ninety nine. Yeah, I'd give you a link on the site to the <laughs> yeah the, the kind I like best. And yep, we'd go. We'd, we'd the most move expensive on to the next question. Oh, absolutely. It's, my, it's, my it's, brand. It's ionized. Trainer Road branding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It goes through a special twelve step proprietary <laughs> process. Exactly. Sorry. Sounds so. It's more absorbable, yeah. Right, yeah. Okay, so what are the claims of the supplement, the benefits of supplementing? Um, one of it, one of them is that it may attenuate deleterious effects of hypoxic training, which could have some relevance if you're going to either compete or train at altitude. 
Um, speeds up recovery from exercise stress. And, and I see that a lot. And this is another one of those broad statements that I think just reels people in. Oh, I got to have that. It'll make me recover faster. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then to, to that end, they say that it plays a decisive role. And this is directly quoted from one of the studies I reviewed or looked at plays a decisive role in prevention of cell damage. And I always take that to mean, or at least in this case, if we're seeing more oxidation, then there's going to be more oxidi more oxidative damage, or at least the potential for it. So maybe this has a positive effect on the antioxidant system. And we see an uptick in our antioxidant response. That's, that's all I got on that. That's my best, best going theory. Um, get a little more esoteric on this. It helps us stockpile acetyl groups. And this is for the, for the biochemistry nerds, but this can prevent that energy deficit that I was just talking about that leads to us using those really short-term energy supplies. And then also, and without going into what beta alanine is, cause I think that's probably a topic for later. It's going to be a, I, we've been asked to talk about it and I do actually want to look into it a little more and share some, some learnings, but it is a beta alanine precursor, which could have some short power implications. Got it. As, as an endurance athlete, I mean, we're not immune to the need for short power. I mean, we, especially as, as mass start racers, mountain bikers, et cetera, there's plenty of short power. Even look at the usage. full, like full distance triathletes and they have to make a pass. Like uh, Nate Zarlango was mentioning the fact that he had to make a pass and he just didn't really have it in the tank to make the pass as fast as he needed to. Right. Oh, sure. And he got penalized. Like it, everybody needs that. You know? Yeah. Uh, another thing that grinds my gears <laughs> a lot of times in it depends on the type of racing, Ironman probably not as much, but in our racing crit and mountain biking, it's who can do, who can burn the most carbohydrates for the shortest amount of time, like for a short amount of time, who mm. wins the race. Sure. Yeah. That's right? a way to think of it for yeah. sure. It's who mm -hmm. can do the most, the kilojoules within yeah. one minute. Yeah. That's um, a and normally that frame it. Yeah. And yeah. so if you prevent yourself, like if you become very fat adapted, that's great for long, slow stuff like Leadville, um, or maybe long Ironman stuff. But if you have to, if your race is five minutes or one minute, like that were most races, that's the key part of it. Uh -huh. Sure. Or maybe 15 Those seconds. Are the pivotal moments. Yeah. You yeah. want as many calajoules and everything firing, yes. everything blowing up. Um, but you also have to get there in a state that you have some fuel left, which so hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. You, you gotta yeah. have, be good at both short, short term energy preservation. Two for two, Nate. It's fantastic. I just, so many things grinds my good, ear. Good we could have a whole <laughs> podcast about this. Okay. So let's, let's talk about the research history briefly. Um, <clears throat> so initially they, they tried administering additional carnitine to athletes via pill or powder form, and it had no effect, no positive effect. So, so basically it's it, interest in it died. I think it's like back in the nineties. I think that's how you can. I mean, you can get L-carnitine at the drugstore mm -hmm. in, in, in pill form is what mm -hmm. I've seen. Yep. Yeah, they and, did and, a lot and of, why is it still there is the question. Uh, and I'm going to tell you. You did answer. a lot of like two to three gram supplementations for mm -hmm. six to 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. Then they looked to see, did it increase in the muscles versus the people who did and didn't have it? They looked at performance. Did that change? And typically it didn't yep. in, in, in either respect until they realized that it has to be accompanied with insulin. Uh, a dose of insulin along with the carnitine actually pushes it into the muscle. It happens over the long term. I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate on that in a second. But without this influx in insulin, which, you know, how do you, how do you uh, cause insulin to increase but ingest carbohydrate, then, then there was no effect. But as soon as they started matching it or at least intaking it with carbohydrate, then they started to see increases in muscular, uh, uh, the amount stored in the muscle. Hmm. So, and this was, if I recall correctly, kind of learned by accident, but they just, they, they had 
I think they're actually using insulin at the time. Uh, I can't remember what the details of the situation are, but they learned that that's, that's the key. That's how we do it. But what's more important is that it has to be done over quite a long period of time. It doesn't happen quickly. And I think Salazar, the article that, that you showed me, talked about how he was advising the athletes, get on this right now. Yeah. Because it's not going to happen. Like six months to a year in advance. Yeah. It's sort of thing. Yeah. They and were that's, talking that's about. about what it is. Mm-hmm. So and he also mentioned, interestingly, that. <clears throat> Uh, for, and uh, this all makes sense, but he said for milers, he was unsure if it was going to help a miler, for example, but he was really saying for you marathoners, this is something that yeah, we I don't know why it need to get on. A mile still very aerobic. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's a short, you know, f- sub four minutes potentially, but that's still a big aerobic draw. Yep, it is. So it turned out that carnine, uh, carnitine plus insulin increased muscle concentrations on the order of somewhere between 15 to 30%. So it was a hefty uptick. But this was supplementing two to three grams a day for at least 12 weeks. And I say at least 12 weeks because even at 12 weeks, they hadn't seen any evidence of an uptick. It wasn't more toward the end of this study, which was uh, like 24 weeks. So 168 days, quite long. So they saw an uptake, but did they see a performance difference? Yeah, mm-hmm. right. So they did. Um, so so what most studies cite when, when they talk about carnitine supplementation is there's an increase in, in oxygen uptake. And there is, there's going to be more aerobic metabolism. If we're burning more free fatty acids, then there's going to be an increase in the amount of oxygen utilized, which also means there's going to be a decrease in the respiratory quotient. So that whole thing that we measured when we did our basal rates and, and our, mm-hmm. uh, was, was down at 0.7 means you're burning primarily fat or maybe entirely fat, whatever, all the way up at 1.0, then it shifts more towards or entirely towards carbohydrate. Um, so and somehow that's tied to enhanced recovery, which uh, maybe has to do with the prevention of the cell damage that I talked about earlier with enhanced mm-hmm. antioxidant defense. So anyway, the study that I just talked about, 24 weeks long, which translates to 168 days, two grams twice a day. So they were they were splitting it up um, along with 80 grams of carbohydrate, and that's the key. They supplemented with a little less carbohydrate in one study where they used protein. They're only doing 40 grams of carbohydrate, 40 grams of protein, and they weren't seeing the same effects. In fact, they weren't seeing effects at all. Wait, how much carbohydrate did they have with it? 80 grams. Wow. It's a hefty amount. That's a hefty amount. Yeah, yep. yeah exactly. Um, so what happened with this is, that, like I said, at 12 weeks, they saw no cr- increase in the, in the content, the, the muscle content of carnitine. But at 24 weeks, they saw about a 20% increase across their athletes. Um, so they tested this 30 minutes at a light workload um, at roughly 35% VO2 max. So we're talking like, what, 50% of threshold. Um, then for the next 30 minutes, they increased it to 50% of VO2 max. So maybe we're talking, what, about 85 percent of threshold-ish in mm-hmm. that ballpark. Mm-hmm. Either way, not, not a heavy amount of work, but at this point, this is when glycogen starts to get used, but they were using less glycogen. So more free fatty acids are probably making it into the cells and being utilized as energy. Then at 30 minutes, or the next 30 minutes, so they're 60 minutes into this, now the final 30 minutes, they have them go effectively all out, but it's 30-minute effort, so it's not going to be you know totally full gas, which they pushed up to about 80% of VO2 max, which is in the ballpark of threshold. Mm-hmm. So they sat there and they saw less lactate production. Again, you know, if we're metabolizing more free fatty acids, we're not generating as much lactate as we would if it were glucose, less lactate accumulation. So there was an effect. Yeah. Yeah. No, but lactate's good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And then another study, 2013, for three months, twice a day, one and a half grams plus the 80 grams of carbohydrate. And they saw an increase in muscle carnitine levels, an increase in fat-stimulating gene expression. Um, In particular, if anyone cares, carnitine acyltransferases. And then a random study that I couldn't, uh, all I got was a little blip on it. 
was that, uh, oh, and I already mentioned this, when they accompanied it with protein, they saw no effect, but they did it with a decrease in the amount of carbohydrate administered. So if they had maybe done 80 grams of carbohydrate plus 40 grams of protein and gotten all the carbohydrate necessary, maybe that protein would have facilitated the uptake. We'll never know unless someone else does a similar study. Huh. What do you know? You said 80 grams of glucose. Do you know what they used? Mm, different in different cases. Um, it was liquid, liquid form in that first study. So the 24 week study. This was before they worked out or when, do you know, during the time of day? It doesn't really matter. I mean, when you supplement um, pre-workout, post-workout, I'm clearly not going to do it during the workout. Well, I wouldn't but, do it during. I think it's all the times that I would eat 80 grams of like pretty much okay, gels. Okay, so maybe that's a good time to do it yeah, because that's an easy time hour. to accompany it with that much <laughs> carbohydrate. But yeah. the point is, it, Especially fast. this accumulates over such a slow span of, or a long span of time. I'm trying to think you would need the insulin spike and I'm... I, I wouldn't eat 80 grams of, even me, 80 grams of like pure sugar It'd anytime during the day. It's quite a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I would during an hour of sweet spot, like, yep. and I would sip a bottle through an hour sure. and have that 80 you grams. Have your like, you put in your Martan thing. Yeah, totally. Bottle. It's 80 grams. There's, yeah, 89 or 80 yeah. grams per bottle. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, if, if you guys are actually considering going down this road, let's talk about the risk of supplementation. Yeah, let's talk about that and the methods. Okay. Yeah. So first off, um, athlete responses vary widely. So you may be uh, an, effectively a non-responder. So there's it's one thing and that's always, them, in right? that's always in play, right? <laughs> um, it is a supplement. So WADA is not going to test it and they're not going to endorse it. Mm. Yeah, I looked it up on, uh, you can go to globodro.com mm -hmm. and uh, it is... Not prohibit. It's an amino acid. They're not going to prohibit um, uh, prohibit an amino acid. Sure. Right. Yeah, that'd be right. kind of hard, like yeah. especially when your body produces naturally. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's available in so many sources, so many dietary sources that people are already yeah. consuming. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, there is a potential for overdose, but this typically comes in doses as high as six grams <laughs> per day. Thank you for telling me that. <laughs> I figured you of all people need to hear that. And um, the problem there is that it elevates something called TMO, which is trimethylamine and oxide, and Yep, that's right. Um, the issue being that it increases your cardiovascular disease risk. Oh, well, I'm not so, going to do it then. So a bit of a downside. Yes. On the bit high of a end. downside. Just a bit. Just on a the bit. high end. Um, and then also recognize that the body sufficiently produces this endogenously. So uh, any supplementation can carry side effects. And I always have to chuckle when I hear the term side effects because they're just other effects. There's the effect you <laughs> desire, and then these things get relegated to side effects when they're just also effects. effects. I mean, these all happen, but that's the one I want. So that's the one I'm going to call the main effect, and then everything else gets tabled as a Back side effect. That grinds Chad's gears right there. It yeah. absolutely does. <laughs> yeah. It's not a side effect. It's totally. another effect. It's just not the one you want to celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the one you sell, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so that's enough for me to say no. Yeah. yeah. I don't need any heart disease. And, the, and the, so... So what, two pages of notes there, and then I got four lines that basically talked you out of it. And I'm happy to hear that because, <laughs> again, I mean, what, what's the, the risk-reward ratio here? Yeah. And that's what you have to ask yeah. with all supplements that you're taking in, everything else like that, even, you know, everything. And yeah. there are people, there are portions of the population that have low um, L-carnitine <clears throat> mm -hmm. that need to supplement. And it's mm -hmm. like heart patients. And, and that's and, when uh, supplementation forget. makes sense. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Your body's not up to the task. But for us healthy people, yeah, it sounds, I'm not trying to... It. I'm not a pro athlete, right? right? So like these, uh, Nike athletes, they're, 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 they're absolutely, already, you know, splitting hairs on hairs, right? If it's they're like, testing, uh, testosterone through skin, <laughs> like, which is dangerous in general, like yeah. the gel. Yeah. Uh, and see, this is when performance comes at a, a higher priority than good health. And yeah. I've always struggled with that. Yeah. Even in high level athletes. One thing that Brian says is that they wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't effective. 
uh, Brian, I think we have uh, plenty of examples through pro athletic history <laughs> of, plenty of, things. of athletes doing things <laughs> oh, that one, um, had no impact yeah, um, and two are super dangerous for their health. Yes. Um, sometimes no impact and super dangerous for their health. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we do a whole episode on that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it happens all the time. Just because a pro does it doesn't mean one, it's safe or two, that it's even effective. Mm -hmm. um, because they're looking for half a percent and they'll do anything. I mean, look at it. Yeah. I look mean, at, look at how well, close these running races are. Age groupers will do anything. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Let alone people trying to make a million dollars or be a sure, world record a, in the history, get a, a gold career medal. and a reputation yeah. riding on it. Yeah. Not yep. saying that all of you do that either. There's right. plenty of clean oh, yeah. pros and stuff. I'm, I'm just saying the desire is high. So, um, don't, don't think that they researched it all and are weighing the cost benefits or anything like that. Yeah. Well, it's definitely easy to think that they're doing everything right and they must be doing everything for a very perfect reason that we don't know. So, um, for instance, I take tart cherry juice. I'm kind of like on the science if it's really going to help me be a faster athlete, mm -hmm. but I like the taste. It's good. And it's, and, and, <laughs> it's delicious. It helps you sleep. And, yeah. And, yeah. And it so does carry antioxidants. It, but it doesn't mean it's going to make me faster cyclist. Yeah, true. Um, so just, but there's a chance there's you're saying there's a chance. I know. And so the, the for me, the cost benefit of that is, uh, yeah. there's probably a benefit to the antioxidants for my sure. long-term health. It might be preventing aerobic adaptions, um, depending on when I take it and, but it might make me sleep better, but yeah, I'm just but saying that hope you get my bigger point is just because somebody does it doesn't mean that it's, it's not the most overt form of supplementation either. It's still in, in real food. Yeah. It is real food. It's cherry juice. Yeah. yeah. So, and, yeah. and dietary resources don't seem to have that same detrimental impact on your adaptation to oxidative stress. Yep. Let's go into Brian's question. Cool. He says, I've been training for long endurance rides, including 70 mile grand fondos and century rides. And he says the tapering advice I've gotten from my coach uh, looks a lot like the tapering plan for my younger brother. Uh, that my younger brother gets from his coach for racing crits. So crits versus grand fondos, quite different sorts of racing. My intuition tells me that these are two very different types of events that require different tapering strategies. I understand that in each type of race taper, I will want to reduce volume, but maintain and in or increase intensity. But what kind of taper is appropriate for a century in grand fondo or endurance road race, et cetera. This is a great question. A fantastic <laughs> Good question. Job, Brian. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Way to go. Uh, so uh, where do you want to start with this one first? I guess there's a lot of, a lot to talk on here. Um, we do. it's, it's always contextual. Um, you don't even need me to say that, but you have to consider the situation. I mean, is this an A event? Is it a training event? Are you a new athlete? Have you been doing this for years and years? Um, what type of event is it? Criterion versus Grand Fondo versus something like a century? Cause a Grand Fondo can be raced. Mm-hmm. I guess you could race a century too. I, I, I don't see many people not racing a Grand Fondo. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's oh, still, yeah, yeah. Sure. Everyone's, everyone's kind of given it, you know, oh, yeah. they, that, that front group goes out fast and everyone tries to stay with them until they can't do it. Any yeah, longer. exactly. Right. Yep, so yeah. at the, then it becomes a Grand Fondo after that. When we did Levi's Grand Fondo at like mile 95 or something, yeah. I don't know if you guys remembered, but we started going a little faster. You started to cramp oh. and I stopped. And this like 18 Hellish. year old kid started talking like smack to me about how like I just blew up and stuff like, oh, you did a good pull, but now you can't handle anymore. And like, yeah. And we're like, we're, we're not racing. Like we're in the middle of it, like yeah. a thousand out of 2000 or whatever people. Right. And he just starts like telling me in the middle of Grand Fondo. Calling about, you out. Calling me out. Yeah. And I'm like looking behind waiting for you because you cramped. I was oblivious to that. I was, you were, cause you I were was dropping so many F-bombs. I, I don't think I've ever cussed that much in my life. That, <laughs> you, that was true. so much pain. It's you true. weren't with us. Uh, it was, it was on the way streak. back. It Do you was... remember when I, you remember that, right? Do you remember that? You remember the kid. That but... whole ride is like one of my favorite days in memory. I know. Because the chat's <laughs> Chad with the cramping and, the, and then taking hot shots and then feeling 
terribly sick, then cramping more. And then Nate suddenly getting a, like a seventh wind at the end and, and going extremely fast at yeah. the end. Yeah, which is probably what inspired the cramping because I was just like verging on it. And many of keeping your Keeping it at bay. <laughs> it and then this guy got to up uh, the pace in the closing three kilometers. Well, we were going easy the whole time. It was, it was yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's a long day. It was very enjoyable for me. I was, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Chad, but it was great, greatly That's enjoyable fine. for me. But to the point, yeah. The racing really, it's not also just about the event, but how you plan to ride the event, right? Mm -hmm. That's like uh, kind of what we're getting at with that point there. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then do understand that with a taper, all we're trying to do is shed fatigue without costing ourselves fitness. Mm -hmm. That's the goal. So that can be accomplished a whole number of ways. But over the course of the taper, you also want to stay sharp for your event. So something like a century doesn't require much sharpness. It really is just about eliminating fatigue, whereas something like a criterium or a mass start event where you're going to be doing a, hot, a lot of high-intensity efforts absolutely does require some some uh, uh, preparatory efforts. Mm -hmm. you know, Stuff that's similar to openers. what you're going to face on race day. Yeah, and not even openers, but just something that keeps you in touch, you know, both physiologically and psychologically with what it's like to go that hard. Mm -hmm. Keeps the energy systems online. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you can't under, underplay the importance of the learning process. I mean, if you've done this a couple of times, you should pick something up every single time you do it. And if you're doing multiple types of events, you're going to have to apply those learning to each of those types of events too, because mm -hmm. as well, as we are discussing different types of tapers are necessary for different types of events. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, still the overall, the overarching theme is that you're trying to eliminate fatigue, but, yeah. but not take it so easy that you cost yourself fitness in the process. Um, and then I'm a big fan of really responsive anything, but responsive tapers, responsive recovery weeks, responsive training, where you ask yourself, how do I feel? I and mean, if I've got a ton of fatigue, I'm going to alter my taper based on how tired I am, as opposed to I'm feeling so good. I don't even think I need to taper. I'm just going to roll right into my event, in which case I might do a very short taper on the other end of it. Could be a two week taper because I've been training for six months and the, and the training load has been so high and so persistent that I need a longer taper in order to get to a place where I feel like I can race at my best. This brings up a really good point because I see a lot of athletes say, this is how I taper. And, and there's a lot of value in learning it's how your body, thing. yeah, there's a lot of value in learning how your body typically responds. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and that's very good. But at the same time, you can't put yourself in a box and just say, this is how it has to be every single time. Well, and that, that goes along with the idea that we always assume that a taper is a reduction in volume and no change in intensity. That may not be true. You may necessarily, that, that change in intensity may be necessary. You may be so overcooked from those high intensity efforts, the reducing the high intensity for a short while, maybe knocking your 120% repeats down to 115 or 110 or but an actual intensity reduction may be in line. Mm -hmm. It's not a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So learning what your body does and then constantly keeping those principles in place mm -hmm. to, to guide yourself with it. Um, so I guess uh, getting into the demands of uh, like the event, if you want to kind of draw some, 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 I guess you can almost say like guidelines too. Yeah. It. Well, this, yeah. this goes along with what I'm just saying. I mean, it, for, for something like a criterium, you may, want to keep your sprint sharp. So you're going to be doing sprint events over the course of your taper week. If you're doing sprint practice, Nate, if you're going to be doing a grand fondo <laughs> or, you know, even less competitive, uh, yeah, a century, mm -hmm. something where you're not, you don't plan to go hard at all at any point during the day. Why would you possibly taper your sprint mm. or include sprints in your taper? Yeah. It just makes you feel good sometimes though. You feel on. And it's, it's fun to show if up there's to a race. psychological benefit yeah. and there's no real physiologic toll being taken yeah. when you do six second sprints, you know, a handful of them in a, in a, over the course of a workout. And it depends just to Jonathan's point, sometimes in a, uh, 
in a grand fondo, you want to bridge to another group, mm-hmm. right? Because sure. mm-hmm. like, there's a fast group. I got stuck here. There's traffic. It's a one minute bridge. Well, and this again is why it's contextual. How do you plan to ride yeah. whatever event this is? Yeah. If it's a grand fondo, are you going to try to stay with the lead group? Are you going to let the lead group go and then use riders to get across to that lead group? Are you going to ride aggressively? Or are you going to ride very... Just solo. Uh, leisurely. Just be like, I'm never going hitting 200 the yeah. whole time. Maybe you're out there to literally get snacks. Yeah. 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 Hit the aid stations, chat with people, enjoy yep. the climbs, not rail the descents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So <clears throat> I guess the the other side of that, or I guess that, that just goes back to what we're talking about. Like you said, Nate, if you find that doing sprints makes you feel ready, and I'm using air quotes here, like psychologically ready, mm. that's another thing of, like you said, Chad, where your the learning process comes in play, where you have to learn how your body behaves mm-hmm. with these certain things. You just have to make sure that you're constantly kind of riding that line of that, that general principle of making sure that your freshness is going up. Mm-hmm. I just want to uh, like defend Brian's coach a bit, because if he... I mean, I think Chad's saying the same point, there's a, but there's for, a lot of overlap. Yeah. For mm-hmm. other people are saying, are listening, totally. if, if Brian's coach wants to put, to give, uh, him as many tools as possible during this grand fondo, mm-hmm. the reduction in volume with some intensity, it's probably mm-hmm. a great strategy, but sure. what Chad's saying doesn't have to happen. Listen to your body experiment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the, the, the same training carrying into the same event could necessitate a different taper. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, all, yeah. all, so many other things going on, so many other forms of stress could influence it to a point where you need a different type of taper because when we did Israman or when I did Israman, which is the Ironman bike distance leg in Israel, I didn't ride for like a week. I was just like a complete week off coming into oh, it. Yeah. The, the time change and the travel and sure. uh, they had us like doing all these tours and I was just trashed and I had a good performance relative to my fitness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's like, and other times that would, that might've been disastrous sure. to not ride for a whole week ahead of a race. Exactly. So my, d- exactly. To your point, point. the yeah. stress was high. So the training was non-existent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Going to Trace's question. He says, I've been, per- or I've been considering purchasing one of your plans for a while, which you purchase the subscription. You get all the plans, uh, trace, which is a handy thing. He says, and I'm a regular listener to the podcast. Thanks for that. I see that you have programs geared toward gravity racers, but as a top national level masters downhill and enduro racer, I still struggle pretty sweet. Uh, that means he's really fast. Uh, I still struggle to believe that using a stationary bike for training and monitoring only my pedaling power seated with a stationary upper body is relevant for the type of racing that I do. I do want to follow a more structured power-based program for next season. So I've been considering using either a rowing machine or an assault bike, like an Airdyne. And Chad, can you explain kind of what those are? And, and Tucker will put in a picture in the forums so that people yeah, can see. I it, think Schwinn made them originally, the Airdynes. So. Mm-hmm. But they have those big caged fans on the front and then the two arms that are kind of bullhorn shaped mm-hmm. and they oppose your pedal stroke. So as you're pushing down on one side, you're... They pose? Yeah, yeah. they pose. Yep. So basically you're revving your arms to the same time. It's all linked together. In fact, it's it's all linked together. It's all mm-hmm. linked to that fan. So both your legs and your arms are driving the fan wheel, flywheel. We had one as a kid and it made a great clothes hanger. <laughs> <laughs> you could put five, <laughs> six shirts up there. I think we got one. You know, Nordic track. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> but anyway, there, there's the possibility of some upper body conditioning. There absolutely is possibility. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you could avoid it, especially if you go full gas like they do in the CrossFit setting. Yeah, if you want to see him, go to look up CrossFit videos and you'll see people doing uh, uh, yeah. basically. It hard. It's usually like a calorie requirement or something 20 calories on the air die and then move on to whatever's next mm-hmm. which would be like kilojoules yeah um, and you drill it yeah it's yeah. it's it's popular in crossfit right now yeah oh mm-hmm. totally so he says he's been considering what using one of those or a rowing machine for my ftp test and subsequent training since the core and upper body strength required to make power in those machines the twisting and hinging that you do more closely matches the muscle requirements of my events mm. 
so this is all like a very, like a string of logic, right? Like I can see how you would arrive to these conclusions. I, I do too. Absolutely. It says recently, Jonathan did mention that in his last enduro race, he spent the majority of his time coasting in a few of the stages. Uh, obviously not enough because Richie Root, as we found out in that whole video series, did a whole lot more coasting and just destroyed my times. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have spent more time coasting. He says that even though I did that, my heart rate was still very high. My intuition tells me that there is still a fairly large power requirement from bodies in these events, even though we are not pedaling and I do routinely hit my max heart rate in every enduro stage and downhill race that I compete in. So, uh, does following an approach like this make sense or would the stationary bike still condition the cardiovascular system equally? If this is true, would I just need to focus on strength requirements from my events separately with additional core and upper body work? Uh, cheers and thanks for thank, cheers and thanks in advance. Podcast is great. And I'm optimistic that the training program will be too cool. I think, uh, it's probably important for us to point out the fact that we do not have any specific research on this like this scenario, right? No, how airdyne carries over to yep. enduro riding. I don't know of any, uh, I searched the web and I came up with nothing. Uh, that said, I think that what we can do is look at what the world's best enduro and downhill trainers do in this case. And, and what they do is they keep them separate. Now you'll also see that in the off season, for example, uh, Richie rude or Aaron Gwynn or, you know, top athletes like that. I think they work with a guy named perform or perform MX training, I believe is the, the name of the, yeah. the system. Uh, great guy seems to really know what he's talking about in the off season. You'll see them doing a whole lot of different things. So you'll see videos of them. I'm sure on like a, on, on like an assault bike, something like that. But when it comes into actually training for the season and when things get more specific, but really their whole entire season, once they get out of the off season, it's, they keep it separate. They train on the bike. Uh, Richie Root actually said when he was in here, he loves road riding and he does a lot of road riding and he does that. So then it's just way easier for him to train uh, with a road bike, that sort of a thing. And then they do a lot of stuff in the gym. So it's like separated. And the, the, the goal behind that separation is to specialize highly in each one, get the most out of each of those things. And then that basically builds a better product in the end, in terms of a fitter athlete. Um, that's the logic behind that. It's not to say that it wouldn't benefit you though. I mean, if you, if you spent time on assault bike, you'd still be, you know, building fitness. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a second. I actually want to make a, a point Sure, <clears throat> having to do with that very thing, but I do want to just jump back here for a second. And, mm -hmm. um, he said his, he's, he's concerned about his heart rate being high. Mm -hmm. So first off on race day, heart rate has no place. Just dismiss it. It's, it's only going to psych you out. There's, there's no real benefit in watching your heart rate on heart day. Pay attention to how you feel mm -hmm. and how you're performing. Um, especially considering you're in a race scenario, which already is going to elevate your sympathetic response could be at altitude. You are doing some work. Um, mm -hmm. what about the heat? I mean, all these things can have an influence on heart rate. So don't give heart rate too much concern. Scared out of your mind. Yeah, absolutely. Downhill race. Yeah. Oh yeah. Scary yeah. stuff. Fear yeah. goes way Adrenaline. Up. Yep. Well, and you'll see like, you know, in those sort of moments too, if you have a really scary moment and your heart rate, isn't going to really come down a whole lot. And so there are other things other than just pure performance that are driving that, I guess is what, what we're getting uh, at. Potentially. With yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Uh, so Chad, then, what do you want, what do you have to add so, on this one? So the conditioning, I understand why he would want to have a greater level of aerobic conditioning in his upper body. It does make sense, totally. but the specificity doesn't work for me because it doesn't carry at all. You have two independently moving arms, whereas with handlebars, everything kind of moves in unison. Mm -hmm. So right there, that's a different muscular demand. You're not pulling the bars so much as hanging onto the bars and stabilizing your body. Mm -hmm. So it's not quite the same thing. The only case I can see for 
introducing aerobic capacity sort of training for the upper body is just to process more lactate in the moment. So if you've got this lactate being shuttled out of the cells into the bloodstream, it can actually get picked up and utilized by other muscles. So you could clear lactate a little faster, mm -hmm. which, you know, and the blood acidification goes along with it, et cetera. But that assumes the muscles that the lactate is effectively, you know, cruising by are exerting the demand. They have to be, they have to need that lactate to be able to utilize it. So this isn't, I just don't see the muscles working hard enough that they would actually pick up that lactate. They're not going to be, these are more isometric contractions. It's not like this bout of concentric repeats mm -hmm. like we, like we see with the lower body. Trace, uh, as I said too about rowing, rowing, mm -hmm. what do you think about that? That's more akin to it. I think if you're going to yeah, overlap it with totally. anything, I would scrap the aerodyne and, and stick to the rower because that those joint actions are very similar. I oh, mean, yeah, yeah, in that case, the legs are moving at the same time, but you're able to dress the legs on the bike. The rowing is very much in line with the, the muscular and metabolic demands of downhilling. Uh, rip row. That's right. It's about as specific as it gets. And that can get you, you can even have super your legs staggered. Burning, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, another thing that you'll see people use is the ski erg, uh, where they're basically like rowing straight downward. You'll see a lot of people yeah, doing and that's that. just, I mean, that's a lot of muscle mass working and that's going to be a big, uh, demand on the aerobic system, mm -hmm. huge oxygen uptake. I mean, this is why we see in pro level Alpine skiers mm -hmm. that they, they post the highest VO2 maxes. That's because they're using a lot of muscle mass. Yeah. If these same athletes were sat on a bike and all they were doing was their leg utilizing their legs, we'd probably see VO2 maxes similar to that, that we see in the top level, you know, cyclists. cyclists. If Trace wanted to do this and he's looking at getting an assault bike or a rowing machine, personally, I would get the rip row. Cause that's going to be like a rowing machine, but built around exactly how Super your bike specific. is. And you can even get the handlebar with exactly the same. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, honestly, as far as a, a piece of equipment, that's about as specific to the sports demands as you can get. That's it. It'd be the rip row. Yeah. 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 I it's, and I think that you look at this keeping things separate and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, and it allows them to really become efficient at different things. And, and that's, know? that's another point I wanted to make is something like this. You can experiment as much as you want to in the earlier phases of training before things get really specific. And you're just trying to improve the, the, the level of oxygen you can push through your body and you want to do, you want to incorporate the aerodyne into your workouts. Why not mm -hmm. use it in the base training? It doesn't mm -hmm. even have to be considered cross training so much as just another stimulus to incorporate along with what you you're doing on the bike already. Yeah. And the, where I guess I'll get with like the point of keeping them separate, let's say you don't keep them separate and let's say that if we don't know this, but let's just assume that you have a potential to raise your FTP to 300, right? If you trained really well on the bike all the way through the year, but because you're instead spending all the time on the air, air nine, you only get yourself up to like 250, 260 mm -hmm. because of the fact that you're always exerting more demand on your system. Wouldn't it be better to push that needle higher on one side and then to work on the strength demands with specificity that you would have? Probably. And I think that's why the top pros do it in the <clears> way that they do. Uh, it's just, it's more, it's a better way to get more out of the athlete basically. Um, despite it's very logical. Uh, way to think about it though. I can totally see why you yeah, would think I like of it the this lines way. Long, what she's thinking for sure. Anything else to add on this one before Doug's question? Um, cool. I don't think so. Let's move in. Uh, so this, uh, once again on the enduro side, but this also applies to all of us that do just long rides and or enduro format racing, but long rides on the road, everything else. 
He says, what was Jonathan's nutrition strategy for his recent EWS race? I remember listening to a podcast from a previous year, the one where Jonathan told us about his first enduro experience and that he beat everyone going up the hill. I was, yeah, that was good for yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> one <Nailed> that, <laughs> won that one. <laughs> and he says, one of his takeaways is that enduro races or enduro racers don't eat enough. Now, after his EWS North star race, he had the same takeaway on both occasions. He didn't go into much, if any detail on what to eat. I've tried to take on board this advice, but I feel like I'm still getting it wrong. I try to eat foods rather than gels with the thinking behind that being the transitions are longer and slower efforts. I can process food like that. It's low enough intensity in intensity to allow me to digest foods. However, on a recent race race practice day, I was sick after the ride and was unable to race on race day. He says it was unusually hot and sunny day by UK standards. I ate more than usual and I was riding the transitions at a higher pace than I normally would. So I could keep up with the group. All of this must've contributed to my unwellness after the ride. Uh, so that, that could totally make sense. So how should I be putting together the ideal enduro practice and race nutrition strategy for two big days on the hill? There's one really good point that he makes in the asking of his final question there is, and Richie also agreed the caloric demand on your body is probably higher in your practice day than it is on your race day because it's a longer day and you're going down a section, hiking back up, going down a section, hiking back up and doing that for every stage and doing a lot of work with that. So you, you absolutely have to fuel the day before. And if you, you know, drain yourself from that day and then come into the next one, you'll be depleted or relatively depleted and not, not effective. Hmm. Um, on one side of things, I think that it's, so you mentioned the fact, and a lot of enduro races are like this, where you can, you go really hard for a short period of time, and then you can just ride up at the pace you want. But more often than not, I find that people still find mm. those transitions to be hard. Like it's a steep climb. So they're riding close to their threshold and it's not exactly like it's just cruise. You know, you're just not going absolutely yeah. all out. My concern is even if you were cruising and going at a very light intensity during the, the race segments. Is it enough time for your body to digest whatever it is you're eating? If you're eating whole food, it doesn't digest as quickly as gels and sports drinks will. Yeah, yeah. Just because in the moment it's low intensity doesn't mean that, you know, still your body need, you still mean, need time. A couple few hours for fairly complex carbohydrate. I mean, simple carbohydrate in food form is going to take longer than gel form or, or liquid form. Yep. It's kind, of, it's kind of different than because you raced a lot of this year. You did like multiple crits in a day. <clears throat> yeah. And I've, you maybe have big windows, small windows. Uh, Small, eh, annoyingly sized windows, <laughs> two hours, which yeah, is like just yeah, enough where yeah. you can't really get full food, sure. but you don't want to eat just gels. But if you're also uh, riding, I mean, you got to do the gels. Don't eat whole foods. I just did this yesterday um, on accident. My timing for my workout was bad, but I had huge spinach salad and a lentil soup right before I went on the bike. Ooh. It was like 90 minutes. That is not enough time workouts. to digest lentil soup <laughs> so or spinach saddle, uh, salad. So very um, uncomfortable. But if I had gels... I would have been plenty fine. I would have been like probably buzzing with all of the energy. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty simple. I think is don't eat whole foods. If you're going to be doing these high intensity things, cause it's going to be hard. Yeah. Any yeah. level of effort is going to slow digestion. Yeah. Yep. So, so even if you're working at 60% of your threshold, you, you have to eat accordingly. I mean, don't, you're not, you're not, you're not a pro tour rider rolling down the road. I mean, coasting half of the time who can eat anything they want. Cause they've still got four more hours of that ahead of them. 
this is this is still pretty active business. But still, I'd argue like it's two parts of it. One is what you just said, but two, if you're going to do something very high intensity and your stomach's going to be full, oh, yeah. like in a downhill or enduro race, <laughs> um, or a, a segment on that a stage, that's where it's hard. And the pro tour uh, riders, right before they go up Alpe d'Huez, they're not like, let's eat some rice oh, cakes and not. bananas. <laughs> yeah, right. Just, they're, they're doing gels. Just have a big lunch and wait an hour and then do a VO2 max workout. You'll see exactly they, what we're wow. talking about. They're, yeah, very bad. <laughs> they're, they're taking in those whole foods when it's the long flat stages and they're sitting in the pack and they're spinning along it. They average 250 Watts for the day, right? Or early in the day. Yep, I see some people the on day. the start line do bananas right before they start, but it doesn't get, it's not going to get super no, intense. And these are also riders who have done this time and time and time again. Yeah. So they're yeah. very, they've, they've figured out what is tolerable and what yeah. is not. And bananas is a lot easier than lentil soup oh, and yeah. Spanish salad. The one thing that I can think of is if you're doing like a rare event, like uh, trans Provence, which I guess doesn't exist anymore. So like uh, you could be doing uh trans Cascadia. Those are like point to point six days and you may ride for hours in between at a low pace until you get to a stage. That's one thing. But the majority of enduro races, you have way less than two hours in between stages, right? So in that case, gel and taking in some sort of mix, if you want in your drink that you're going to be taking in, uh, we've talked about this plenty of times, but you know, people talk about a 90 gram limit and I'm saying this with air quotes in terms of carbohydrate and what you can take in and process in an hour. Um, I, I, in my experience, I had to work my way up to that and kind of train my gut. Um, but I can take in even more than that and be okay. But you definitely want to be taking in foods that can process quickly. And I think caffeine is a really important thing, especially for enduro. Cause we're talking about mental acuity and sharpness sure. yeah. and when you're out for a whole day, cause like you, you said also, Chad, like it's a long day. You would normally eat lunch in that period of day of time. So you really have to take in a lot of calories and it's a long day. It's easy to get not sharp and then you're not sharp and you crash. So, um, yeah, caffeine gels, usually 30 minutes beforehand is usually what people recommend. Um, 30, 60. if you're stacking up, just make sure you don't have like a 17 stage day and you're just like taking in a caffeine gel on everyone. You might be <laughs> bouncing off the walls, but yeah, take stuff in the processes quickly and take in a good amount of it. Uh, and try to stay away from whole foods when you're racing enduro, uh, or I guess when you're on those long group rides that are still hard, uh, Daniel, uh, let's go into this question. And this one's on bottle cages, which is actually perfectly appropriate for Kona. He says, I wanted to firstly thank you for a great and highly informative podcast and for the effective training plans and app. I just raced the Atlantic city 70.3, my second half Ironman, and he got 10th in his age group. Way to go. That's nice. impressive. Uh, so he says he went under five hours for that as well. Um, and he says, thanks to following your plans and spending 90% of the year on the trainer, having very efficient training sessions, Bravo. 50, 54 age group too. Hopefully he ages out by the time I get there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> get out of there. <laughs> make room for Chad. We can adjust his training. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just make everything 20 watts lower. <laughs> he says, uh, I follow the Olympic tri plans through to August for my other a race and then switched to the half Ironman specialty phase for the last month and was surprised at how strong I felt average over 23 miles an hour for the 56 mile bike split in the rain and with having to circle around to collect one of my bottles. And that's where his question comes in. My question is not so much about the training, but about flying bottles during the various sprint and Olympic distance distance races I did this year. Uh, he says the, I just used a water bottle between the arms, but for this 70.3 and last year at half Ironman Lake Placid, I had two additional bottles behind the saddle. On bumpy sections in both my races, I lost both of the water bottles behind my saddle before I had consumed any fluids. Oh, that's like worst nightmare, right? 
Especially if you have like your own mix and you have everything planned it, it, out. That's probably literally triathletes like anxiety. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It says this weekend I managed to recover one of them on the next loop. I emptied the contents into my bottle between the arms and placed it back into the cage. It had gone before the end of the race. So he would have had an even faster bike split. Says there were bottles strewn all over the course. I was using profile cages that I used when I purely road raced and had no trouble with them over many years. Pulling the bottles out by hand was a little bit of effort. So why are the, or took a little bit of effort. So why are the bottles coming out so easily in the races, even when they're almost empty? He says, what can I do about it? This is so common in triathlon and you will see, there'll be like a, a lip on a bridge just and jettison. just hundreds of bottles, <laughs> hundreds. just like shooting out of the air, like fireworks. And, and, um, I, I'm not sure. I think it's something where like what's behind your, your saddle, there's more, um, leverage. Yeah, so you like get more leverage. of a pop awesome. than if it's in your triangle. Mm -hmm. I've never had a, an issue in the triangle, but, uh, please in the forum, what episode is this? John? This is episode two thirty. Two thirty. Let us know, triathletes, if you have one. But one that I like is the X-Lab Gorilla Cages, and mm -hmm. there is an extra tough one. Um, so when you reach behind, it's always going to be harder to get a bottle out. And the Gorilla Cages, they they grip hard. Yes. Like way hard. And I've never had a, a bottle eject with those, um, but that's what I use, and that's what I recommend. At Kona every year, people do like bike equipment checks, so they like wheel count for because everybody brings their bike in or yeah. power meter count. I want somebody to do a bottle cage count because I bet like this would be really dominant because you yeah. see them on everybody's bike at that level. Yeah, did you see the X, the gorilla cages? All over at every, yeah. every, and once again, we're talking about world champs, right? So these yeah. athletes have probably been through this before and figured it out. Yeah. Um, I see a bunch of people say like use king cages and grip tape. If you have to put grip tape on your, on your bottle cage. I feel like it's probably not the best bottle cage. Um, you know, there's better options out there. So, uh, I know that you can bend those cages and kind of keep them in, but just as you bend them in, they can also bend out and you take that bottle a little aggressively or put it in at an angle and you've suddenly bent your cage. Uh, that's the nice thing about the gorilla cages. So they have gorilla and gorilla XT. Mm -hmm. Um, the gorilla XT has 14 pounds of grip force and the gorilla has 10 pounds. Wow. So just know if you get the XT, like you're not gonna lose a bottle. It's but gonna be it, hard to get the bottle out yeah, behind I'm, you. So I have those and I can get them out, but I mean, it's not that hard, Yeah, but it's just you also not got monkey arms. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nate, Nate's just got saying. some long reach. Might be uh, a consideration. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's just hard to, uh, you gotta practice it hmm. or you can set That's up a and skill. get it. That's you, a skill for sure. It's I'm assuming skill. you stay in arrow when you reach around and grab that. Um, I have before and sometimes I have not. That's the hard part is staying in arrow and doing that. Sure. Yeah. It can get darn Once right, again, dangerous too. Nate's, Nate's wingspan allows such well, no, things. Well, <laughs> not far forward too though. Yeah, that's a good so point. It's, yeah. It's all relative. What bottle cages do you use on the road? No, the specialized ones. Rib cage. Yeah. I've never had an issue. I've yeah, never once lost a bottle with a with yeah. specialized rib cage ever. Neither have I. Uh, on the dirt, I use their Z cage. Yeah, I've, I've never once lost Same. a bottle with that either. Yep. So yeah, they can work really well. In fact, Seth's bike hacks, it's like a YouTube channel. If you want to look it up, he actually did a very, probably unscientific <laughs> test, but he put bottle cages on a two by four and then dropped the two by four from a great height to basically see which ones would let go. <laughs> and the Z cage just did not let go. Well, while a bunch of other ones did, he was testing side loading cages like that. So, uh, yeah, interesting point. Okay. 
Next one is from John. He says, Hey guys, love the podcast. It's what brought me to trainer road originally. And my FTP is about 20% up, uh, over a year now, which is pretty good. Excellent. Way to go. He says, I have a question about cadence during rest between intervals. As it hits peaks of more than 300 Watts, I keep my cadence around 90. So that's like the work intervals. He's talking about the hard ones, but when the valleys drop to 90 Watts or so, and I'm gasping for breath, my cadence often drops to around 60 or 70 RPM. This is partly because my smart trainer seems to be recording too much power. He says with high cadence, but even more it's because I'm gas. I think what he's talking about there is the fact that you run into a floor with some smart trainers in the sense that 90 Watts, that power target, you know, it, if he just pedals and whatever gear he was in, it may not allow you to drop all the way to 90. And to fix that is don't be in a big gear shift into a little gear or be in a bigger cog in the back. And yep. that allow you to have a, to not hit that cadence floor issue. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It says, should I drop my FTP so I can pedal faster during rest? Are there any disadvantages to spinning slowly during rest? Thanks from John. This is another great question. Yep. Yeah. So <clears throat> John, the, the big, the big tank take home here is that it's not so much about how slowly or quickly you pedal so much as you do it easily. Uh, I don't, I don't think there's going to be any detrimental outcomes because you recover at 30 RPM versus cover at 60 versus recover at 90. Mm -hmm. Honestly, you're just trying to shed fatigue and get, uh, recovered enough so that you can do it again. Mm -hmm. Um, with that said, let's steer the conversation more towards the intensity of the recovery and maybe even the duration of the recovery, because what you may not realize is that the intricacy and the subtleties of recovery intervals is, uh, well, it's vast. There, mm -hmm. There's quite a lot of consideration that goes into how long they are, how, how low they are, where they fall, frequency, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, um, the, the compendium resource on this matter is recently surfaced and it's called me, caused me to review a lot of the workout designs that I have in place. Um, it's a book titled uh, science and application of high intensity interval training. Mm -hmm. I've talked about it a number of times already. It's Paul Larson, Martin Bukite. And what's kind of cool about it is that I go through it and all the uh, studies that they're using on this particular topic, you know, the recovery interval uh, characteristics are the same studies that I used literally 10 years ago. So it's not like there's been a whole bunch of emerging science on recovery uh, duration intervals or recovery interval durations right. and intensity. So good news is I don't have to go change any workouts. Um, that isn't to say I wouldn't do it. If we found a better way, we would absolutely uh, put, it into, put it into effect. It's one of the things that we like adhere to is constant improvement, always making the changes whenever we need to. Yeah. New information crops up and we will absolutely make use of it. If it makes sense and mm -hmm. if it makes you, makes y'all faster. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I just want to say too, all the, there's fads that come through all the time. Yes. We are completely aware of them. <laughs> and we, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. People do. Yeah, it yeah. seems like they assume we are not aware. Sometimes. Exactly. Like, yeah. Oh, did you hear about X, Y, Z? Yes. Like yes, we, we, like all chat like, does, like but ago. like we all hear about it and everyone tells about us, uh, like, um, yeah, and then we yeah. look in the research and we are totally open. Yeah. We discuss, we, we appreciate them. you sharing and we're not afraid yeah. to have a conversation on the matter, but trust me when I tell you, we know. Yeah. And uh, keep sharing though. Cause we sure. yeah. keep it going. Sure. Yeah. We like it. That's um, what we do all the time. Yeah, exactly. And we so. can't stay on top of all the emerging science. I mean, there are literally thousands of papers a day. That's it's, mm -hmm. it's impossible for us to stay. Although, you know, we are in a pretty narrow niche of all those research papers. So it's a little more, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah but the, we, possible. Uh, I'm just, cause people are, you know, totally, <laughs> yep. you know, Oh yeah, I got uh, it. We try real hard. <laughs> yeah, we do. So yeah. Okay. So let's talk, um, first off the objectives of recovery Earlier, let's talk about the objectives of recovery for sure. Um, they're, they're twofold really. Um, so 
you're trying to accumulate high overall workload with a workout and that's going to influence the, the recovery characteristics, or you're trying to maintain a high level of output in all of your subsequent intervals. So you're trying to start high, stay high mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, when it comes to accumulating an, a high overall workload, uh, usually due to low time avail availability, which we can all relate to. And you basically want to get as much work done in a short period of time as possible. Because of that, this is where you will see either a heightened recovery intensity or more likely a shortened recovery duration. You're just going to cram it all in there mm -hmm. and hope for the best. Uh, occasionally, you'll see a combination of the two. And that combination of the two typically weaves its way into the training plan design more towards specialization when you have to be able to make the most out of a little bit of recovery and you still have to do quite a bit of work during these recovery valleys. Mm -hmm. So it'll change over the course of, of a training plan or a, or a BBS cycle. Those are the worst. Specialists. Oh, they are. They are, but they, they the prepare best. you quite well. <laughs> exactly. The worst and the so best. like I said, the, the other end is to maintain a high level of output, interval to interval to interval, to not fall apart over the course of a workout. So you want a big training stimulus. And that kind of comes in, in two parts, or there are two um, ways to address that. One is to maximize the work capacity during each work interval. So basically, we're just looking for high watts. And when that happens, that that's when we're probably going to lead, or I'm going to lead, will lead me to design workouts with prolonged and passive recoveries. Mm -hmm. And in passive, I consider 40% FTP pretty passive. I mean, a lot of the studies, when they talk about passive rest, they're talking about runners who walk. They're still doing something. They're not just standing there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's unloaded pedaling. So they're backpedaling or there's no resistance on the wheel, but they're still moving. Mm -hmm. Occasionally they'll have them stand there, but I don't see that very often where they just cease all motion. Mm -hmm. They're still doing some, in fact, uh, some, some type of activity. So even though it's called passive, it's not a hundred percent passive. Hmm. Um, so in, in then when it comes to, so, so you'll see these, these prolonged passive recoveries more when it comes to the really high intensity stuff. And, and a lot of the times the really high intensity stuff, like the anaerobic repeats mm -hmm. and sprint intensity training. And, and these can get really long three to one. You'll, you'll rest three times as long as you work all the way up to like 10 to one and mm -hmm. get crazy long, depending on the intensity and the, and the sought after outcomes. Um, one study to support this is Yamagishi and Bob Raj, 2019 journal of, uh, strength and conditioning research, they did active rest during the interval. So they had the athletes continue to pedal mm -hmm. and they, they derived more of an aerobic stimulus <laughs> and this actually led them to more of an aerobic adaptation. So even though they were training the anaerobic component or the sprint component, they got really good aerobic return on it. <laughs> um, yeah. So in this, in, in particular, they were doing, basically, if you take a look at workouts like Detling, Burling, Chering, all the ones that are sprint intensity workouts, mm -hmm. this is almost exactly what they describe where they had athletes work, um, 30 seconds at a time all out. And then they had four minute recoveries it's and that's full recovery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, pretty full. I mean, mm -hmm. you could, it could be argued that you're not going to generate all of your regenerate, all of your anaerobic work capacity in more along the lines of 10 minutes. So it could take quite a bit longer to get full regeneration of it. Mm -hmm. But I think at like four or five minutes, you're seeing 90, 95% regeneration. So absolutely enough to work with, not to mention it, it kind of walks that line between anaerobic return and aerobic return. So you get a, a, an increased aerobic input with each subsequent sprint, which is why those sprint intensity training workouts are really heavily influenced toward aerobic benefit. Yeah. Um, and in this case, because they did this, the active recoveries versus the passive recoveries, which was the other study group, they actually saw an increase in, in what they call critical power, but what we call FTP. Mm -hmm. So they actually got an uptick in FTP by working through 
these these four minute breaks instead of just sitting there or pedaling unloaded. Mm-hmm. And I think they worked at it was uh, I can't remember now, but it was it was a very low effort level, something akin to forty percent FTP, which is what I use. Um, and they attribute that to greater cardiorespiratory demands during the active recovery. With the active recovery, individuals gain greater training benefits without increasing total training commitment time. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have to be on the bike any longer. They just happened to pedal through the brakes and they derived a greater training stimulus as a result of it and got faster. I feel like, oh, sorry, Nate, go ahead. No, you go ahead. In, you came in hot to the mic. It's uh, all uh, you. I'm going to say just a sec. I feel uh, it's the, if you train more, you get faster. Like the more you pedal, the more beneficial it is. <laughs> Pretty much to a point. Like, as long as you're not, not pedaling too, too much work. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Still that's like, that's what all you just said is like, has to constitute yeah. recovery, of, but yes. not, if you're in your workout, instead of not pedaling, pedal lightly. Yeah, exactly. Don't yeah. just sit there. I mean, which nobody does anyway. I wouldn't. Some people do. Uh, sure. Occasionally yeah. you get so, so shattered that you have to just kind of sit there and reel. <laughs> that's different. I but just yeah. pedal lightly. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I find <clears throat> to one point that I find really interesting. I, I've found that when I'm really getting closer to peak fitness and everything else, that's when my recovery intervals really matter. Not necessarily because I'm getting so fatigued, I need them as much, but the distant or the duration of those recovery valleys and then the intensity of those recovery valleys, if I stick to those with adherence with, when I follow our plans, then I'm prepped on race day. Yeah. Cause it's, I think a lot of the time it's really easy for us to focus on the work and just let the recovery be the recovery. No, the whole experience gets overtly more race-like. I mean, that yes. is the goal to, to make sure that when you get out on the race course, there are no surprises. And I try to, I try really hard to nail my recovery intervals at the same precision and focus that I do with my work intervals, especially when I'm getting closer to race day, because I've never been in a race yet where I can ask somebody, can you please wait for 10 minutes? So my anaerobic stores can regenerate. That doesn't happen. Right. So like those rest intervals, if they're constrained, you really need to hold yourself to those constraints and you're getting close to race day. Yeah, if then that, it's more about performance are. and conditioning, although there's still a benefit on both sides. Try it all year long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You'll just be better. Right. Yeah. Let's go into some, Oh yeah. So, else so, so those were with the anaerobic and the sprint intensity. Then when we get down to down to, to VO two max repeats, we'll still see reasonably long recoveries, um, shorter, than the three to one, 10 to one ratio, but still usually a couple minutes. And interestingly, the same study that they cite in this book was the one that I read probably literally back in 2005 was Seiler and Hedelid took moderately trained runners. Yeah, they are runners, but still an endurance sport, still repetitive action, had them do six by four at 85% of velocity at VO2 max, which basically puts us right around threshold. So they were doing threshold repeats, but they were doing it on a 5% incline, which makes it definitely above threshold repeats because they were trying to maintain a velocity. So a velocity with an increase in incline, it's going to probably constitute something more along the lines of a VO2 max effort. Mm -hmm. Um, And and they allowed the runners to self-select their recovery window. They wanted them to do these six by fours, but between each four minute interval, they said, recover for as long as you need to before you feel like you can do it again just as well. (laughs) And what they settled on was about two minutes of recovery per. So about a one to two work to rest or rest to work ratio, Mm -hmm. two to one work to rest. Two to one, yeah. And what was it further, even more interesting was that when they, when they reduced the recovery intervals to one minute, they saw a decline in their velocity over the course of each subsequent four minute interval. When they lengthened it to four minutes, they saw no real change. So two minutes was sufficient, which is why if you look at our VO2 max workouts, for the most part, you'll see two minute rests. Mm-hmm. But we at Trainer Road have the luxury of sitting upon a lot of data, seeing a lot of incoming ride files every day, and we notice certain things. And one of those things was that when we used two-minute recoveries on these VO2 max repeats, we didn't get the sort of workout adherence that we wanted. Therefore, we thought these workouts could actually be more productive. How can we change them? So what did we do 
but lengthen those durations to three and sometimes four minutes. And what did we see? Greater workout compliance. Yeah. More people getting faster. So we, this is, we adjusted our plans earlier in some of the workouts because of this, because you, you have that study, mm -hmm. but we have. It says what works <laughs> in the case of, and, and these were probably, these are moderately trained runners. So some of our people probably are moderately trained and maybe those two minute windows work perfectly for them. But what about all the people who are recreationally trained or elite trained, but really gas it on the intervals. The cool mm -hmm. thing is that we had workouts with the same intensity, the same duration of like the same percentage of, of, of FTP and the same work period, but ones with 90 seconds, two minutes, two thirty, two fifteen, and then hundreds of thousands of examples it's data, in each one of those. It's data. These studies would dream of having. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. And then yeah. we saw a huge yeah, drop off. Size. I mean like a huge increase, which is like 30 more seconds, yeah. the compliance rate when almost like oh, from yeah. like very low mm -hmm. to very high, yeah. like, like switch the numbers yes. um, for, for failure versus compliance. And, and in the case of those types of workouts, th this is what, this is the other end of things where we're trying to, so when we maximize work capacity during the intervals, we go about it two ways. We either try to jam the Watts up as high as we can get them, or we try to keep oxygen consumption as high as we can for the longest amount of time. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's kind of what, that's more what we're veering toward with these longer ones. So we give them a longer recovery, but the intervals are long enough that we still achieve a lot of time up at that high aerobic or oxygen uptake. Totally. So we're not, we're not missing the point by adding 30 seconds or another minutes worth of recovery. We're man maintaining high quality in the interval so that we get a stronger training stimulus. Yeah. And then as always, as you progress through the build, the base build cycle or specialty cycle, by the time you reach that specialty plan, that's when doesn't matter what works for you or not. This is how your race is going to be like, and this is what you need to be able to do. So this is what the workouts are. Get them done. Yeah. So that's, okay, I'm going to talk about some trade secrets. Oh. Um, <laughs> hey, so <now>. that's what <laughs> rearranging the workouts inside of a, um, a plan. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what we, we did is because like how Chad said, maybe <clears throat> that workout in week three has a very high compliance rate. Whereas week one, it didn't. Yeah. So by making those small tweaks, we get a higher compliance. And at the end, you're actually do more work and you like you could do, you're more likely to do more power or do more repeats later in the plan than if you did, yeah. like you made the workouts different earlier on. You're yeah. faster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the these goal. are, these the are all things we, we have access to, to, to teasing out. It's pretty fantastic. It's pretty I neat. Know. It's yeah. neat. Okay. So, um, it's neat. What else do I have <laughs> it's here? Pretty neat. Oh, I'm just about done on this. Um, okay. So there was another. Oh yeah. So the other end of this, so like I said, we try to keep the Watts high or we try to keep the oxygen uptake high, um, in order to keep the oxygen uptake high, which is a very strong training stimulus. Um, we basically try to maintain a high level of oxygen uptake during the recoveries. Mm -hmm. This is why the recoveries are short and this is sometimes why they're tall. Yes. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, so, so <laughs> some might say, yep. Yep. So, <laughs> so it's very, <laughs> it's very active recovery. So. <laughs> that's a good way of over under. Yeah, it's very active recovery. That's the nature <laughs> of active recovery. That does not qualify. No. Um, so DuPont 2004 use 15, 15s. And they just call it high intensity, high intensity intermittent exercise. So I honestly don't know. Um, I think it was, I don't know. I did look into it. I'm sorry. I can't recall right now, but the, the point of it was they use passive recovery in between the 15, 15s. So 15 seconds of going full on 15 seconds of doing nothing versus active recovery, where I think they had them work at, uh, 40% of VO2 max. So we're talking about 50% ish of FTP. Mm -hmm. Um, the people who practice the passive recovery versus Oh yeah. The passive recovery time to exhaustion went up a ton, whereas active did not. Hmm. 
I think I may have switched that around. We'll add it in on the forum. We'll add in the the proper the proper order to those ones. Yeah, yeah. Let's table that one for now because I got cool. I, I looking at up his my notes, notes with a confused <laughs> look. <laughs> that can't be right. <laughs> cool. Anyway, so to so to wrap all this up, um, at the time of development, I'm very clear on what I'm trying to achieve with the workouts. Even if as I get past you know creating a plan or creating workouts, I lose sight of what I was originally intended on. Um, so, so the, the due diligence has been done, I mm -hmm. promise you. Mm -hmm. And if we learn better things as we, as we evolve, we're happy to change them. Make we're changes. happy to learn from, from our own, our own research. hundred percent. We're not tying our boat to a specific training methodology. No, we, we don't Ever. care. Science. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're tied to science. Exactly. It makes you faster you. and keeps yeah. you healthy. We're all about it. Yeah. Phil, we're going to go into some live questions uh, that people have submitted. Uh, so Phil first says, Hey guys, remember the guy you interviewed last year? And it was actually a couple years ago, the Irish guy Emmett with a broken collarbone. Uh, yes, we do. Uh, we're good friends with Emmett and, and I, I talk with Emmett every week actually. So he brought great us guy. lucky charms. He really did. He was an, an Irishman brought us actual, not like the cereal, but he brought us actual lucky charms from Ireland. That's amazing. Right. <laughs> literal um, lucky charms. Yep. Literal <laughs> lucky charms. I have ones on my son's backpack right now. So, uh, but, uh, he said that he got back to Kona. Yes, he did. Of course. And ran a three hour marathon. I know, uh, three Oh four is what he ran. Boy, so he whoa. qualified for Boston at Kona basically, you know, like, yeah, he's like, insane. <laughs> <laughs> pretty amazing so yeah and it was great we got to see Emmett um a number of folks that we've had on the podcast previous years there uh we got to see we got to uh I got to even ride on Maui with Mike Stanick, the guy that did the backflip over Mario Lopez. Oh yeah, um, I got to ride with him on Maui, uh, which was fun oh really he went there afterwards so we did oh, cool. a couple rides together yeah uh so that was that was really cool uh okay uh somebody said that we described Ironman Louisville by the way uh, in terms of what we wanted. I kind of want to go international just because it's a great excuse to go see some other part of the world <laughs> sure. and right. because um we do events in the US but there's a lot we haven't done ooh have we done any of no together yes. we have not gone to international. like Europe, Australia, all three of us, no. Asia, yeah together Never have. which would be nice too so um the other side of it too is another constraint for this is we um so I don't think I'm in danger of qualifying. I think Chad is the one that would be closest. I'm the to most qualifying. likely, but it's far from a safe bet. Um, so, but I'm if, not qualifying. If, if I'm going to try, the, <laughs> but I'm not going to. Yeah, do exactly. It. It's not that we're not going to try. We're going to go as fast as we can. Sure. Yeah, but I think uh, along those lines, like let's say Chad qualified, and I think Louisville, but I don't even know if Louisville is coming back next year. I heard it might not. I don't know, but if Louisville happens, I think it happens the same day as Kona. Let's just say you qualified. Then Chad, you get to look forward to another full year of full distance training. How do you feel about Maybe that? Maybe he enjoys it. No, he doesn't do a whole year. He could he no, could maintain. Certainly wouldn't do a whole year. I, yeah. I'm still not committed to the idea of doing Kona. Should I qualify? <laughs> no, you said it. John was there. I know. I've I've since thought about it too. Though. I, I've, you were dreaming. Actually, I just no. I just watched people race, and I thought this looks like a miserable. All endeavor. All you have to do is look at that run, and then every time when you look at the run, you're for like, real. Whoa. I mean, I would, it, uh, qualifying for Kona is the big get. Once you go, you just have to get it done. There's no. Exactly. There's nothing to be accomplished by getting through Kona except yeah. getting through Kona. And if you could do a road bike, I'm not sure that's motivating enough for me. Yeah. Just a complete I, just to complete Kona. I think it is. It's cool. Like you'll get caught up in yeah, it. Yeah, well, let's but cross that bridge if and when. I don't. <laughs> you can, I think you can do it, Chad. I think you can too. <laughs> I appreciate your faith in me, Nate. Yeah, uh, I think you'd be pretty exciting. I know. It's. I just want to talk more about Chad. <laughs> he's got a, he's a great time trialist. He's comfortable in his position. Like that, you will be one of the top That's in your age deal. group. That's a big deal. Like, and that just came together like over the last year and a half. Yep. And we found some uh, cross piece that you're going to get for your giant trinity that's going to make the 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 whole extensions and everything else really stable. Yeah, so yep. like the one weak link in that bike's chain so, is... 
strengthen. If you could hold like 250 watts, mm-hmm. you would be one of the top people in that 50 to 54 age group, hmm. which I think you could do, right? At Kona? Is that no, what you're no. about? Just, any just qualifier. to qualify? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, you're going to have a pool in your backyard. Mm-hmm. And your fiance is an ex-collegiate swimmer. She swam in college. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, you got you got the skill, you got the the thing, and you got a coach. And then you and also swam on the team in college. It's not like she got in the pool while she was in college. Yeah, yeah. She swam in college. Yeah. <laughs> she just realized when I said that. It sounded like I was. <laughs> and then you were. You went twice. to. Did you she go was to in college once? She, she as a duathlete, twice. you went to age group nationals. Is that right? Um. Duathlon ha- didn't have such stringent requirements. Nationals was open to all comers. All right, so but just, I qualified for Worlds. But I you qualified qualif- for okay. Worlds. Yeah. You qualified for Worlds. On a roll down. What's your, that's okay. <laughs> What's your 10K, like best 10K or 5K? I've done a sub 40. It was like 39.08 or something. Yeah. So, and if you can even get that a little bit better, you, yeah. you got it. That was just prior to injury. So I was on a track to get it better, but I just, I rushed the process. Yeah. You can do it. You just got to lose some of those muscles. <laughs> You're, yeah, little, well. you're big uh, and, and you've got a, more I, upper body mass than probably a triathlete needs yeah i won't argue that yeah <laughs> it's not gonna do me any favors that's for sure yeah it's got to carry it everywhere anyways it's enough about chat peter says i'd love to ask for the and he says office lunchtime plan he says in quotes due to life i have basically 60 mm. to 75 minutes five days a week and he says how should i construct my plan a lot of people by the way this is the cool part about joining us on youtube every week a lot of people have already been answering his question with great suggestions uh, but you can look at the workouts and they usually have a 60 minute variant so if you were to follow one of the training plans you can drop down the volume on those or 45 or 45 minute uh we also do have like a, a plan of like really short workouts the time crunched uh plan that you mm-hmm. could follow and you'll still see, uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic quality training that you can get from that. But I see a lot of people, if you don't have time, that's the nice thing of having the lower variant, um, in terms of volume, uh, you can cut down a little bit on the time, which is nice. And it's also worth saying that it's not like Chad just like lops off the beginning or end. Uh, some of these you'll see, they have different, slightly different structures to them because you're trying to put the right amount into each bucket that was yeah. intended with the original workout. So it's uh, strategically it's, done. It's still what I consider to be a well-developed workout. It's just trimmed down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Another person says that uh, for your mountain bike with its wonderfully lengthy name, they say that it's like a thousand dollars per <laughs> <laughs> per word in the name in the title. That sounds about right. Um, okay, rolling through. A lot of people are talking about waking up early and getting their workouts done. This is cool stuff. You can jump in and get like a bunch of like uh, insight from a lot of different people. And question here, somebody says, has anyone in this forum here ever raced through the build phase? Uh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, I think that I've uh, raced through sweet spot base, the, the latter half of sweet spot base. And yep. I had great races in mm-hmm. sweet spot, but yeah, same mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Fantastic races. Fantastic races. In fact, I would argue, let's just say like, uh, well, if you're, if your events like a single grand Fondo or something like that, or you don't have a goal event, that's one thing. But otherwise I would argue that incorporating races that, that are close to the demands of your goal event is a responsible thing to do. And you should be doing it through the build phase. Um, it's just going to help prep you better. I just have to mention our jobs next yes. time. I'll mention it at the top, yes. but, um, we do have a new job posting up for a copywriter. Um, Perfect. so that's going to be a remote job with like, but we can have you as a U.S. employee and some overlap with the. West Coast office, but it doesn't have to be complete overlap. Uh, we also have dev um, jobs still open for C sharp, like backend web engineers and uh, React or React native engineers. So um, 
Yeah. Apply those at trainer.com slash jobs. Slash jobs. That's where you can go and check them all out. Um, we'd love to have you. If you're awesome, we want you. Uh, another person, uh, let's see, uh, somebody says, how would I incorporate cleans into my gym workouts? Uh, we've talked a lot about incorporating strength training into your, uh, into your endurance training. And you can find, uh, if you go to blog.trainerroad.com, you can see where we have like strength training recommendations and cleans. Isn't one of the exercises that we really recommend. Mm. Um, it's not that it's bad, uh, but it's just not one that it's, we, it's a really good strength movement. It's highly technical, but it's good mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, Chad, would you have, would you find them to be detrimental or something that you wouldn't want to include or anything like that? No, honestly, if you're going to do cleans, you're probably going to do them heavy. I don't know why you would do them for high volume, which means you could probably do them just about any time without having a negative impact on, on your endurance training. Mm -hmm. As long as it's, I mean, I do this very thing with, uh, squats or even deadlifts. We're just in the middle of the day. I'll go do a set of five and that's it. Another couple hours later, a set of five and, and it weaves into the endurance training. No problems at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, got a question about when chat updates workouts, do the plan get automatically updated or they're part of your calendar? Yeah, that's a so, tricky one. One time. You, go ahead. <clears throat> I'll, I'll just, go ahead. You want to say it? No, no. Explain that thing first okay. and then I'll talk about something else. So if you update the, um, if we update the individual workouts, <clears throat> so they will be automatically updated. If we update the plan and you already have in your calendar, it like, won't be automatically like updated. the order of the workouts. You're yeah, saying. exactly. And, but we will post about those in the forum. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we'll mention it too on the podcast mm -hmm. and then you can then reapply the plan if you want. Mm -hmm. And then related to that, I made the mistake of changing workouts rather than creating variations of the workouts that didn't go over so well. And I understand why people want historical reference to the workout the way it was. So I no longer change a workout. Rather, I create a version of a workout. And if that gets slotted into the training plan, then mm -hmm. they just described what happens there. Cool. Uh, okay. Uh, with that, that covers it. Thanks everybody for joining us. You can join us on YouTube. It's uh, usually every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific. That's an easy way to do it. Next week, you can join us as well as that at that time. The week after that, we won't have a podcast. It'll be a week off. Um, but uh, once again, we still have a week in between now and then. So please submit the questions. You can do so at trainerroad.com slash podcast. And we can go through those questions. And I do that every week. I read those questions and then we build up a list to go over and head over to trainerroad.com to get faster. That's entirely our focus. We talked a lot about that this week about how we do it and it's our obsession. So if you trust us, we love it. See y'all next time. Bye everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>